0: This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay are joined by Kelly Scott of Failure to discuss the new album The Heart Is a Monster. I want to see an I want
1: to you up. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host Tim Menichi and joining me as always, my co-host Mr. Jason Zieck. Jay, it's episode 239, episode 5 or season 5 of dig me out and this is a this is a big one jay this is a um a special episode for us very very um, special yeah because we are joined by keith jenkins and for those of you who don't know keith joined us on episode what was it like 16
2: mm.
1: for the failure fantastic planet episode um and keith is back because we happen to be talking about failure again keith how are you Thanks, guys. I'm doing great. I'm glad to be back. So, of course, if we're talking about Failure, we're talking about the new record, The Heart is a Monster. And um, back in January, we had Kelly Scott on, drummer of Failure, to talk to us about what was then the album that was in progress. It wasn't quite done. Uh, but he filled us in on sort of the backstory, his uh, backstory uh, of as grown up, moving out to Los Angeles, becoming a, a drummer for um what was the name of the band? I, I'm now blanking. Liquid. Uh, Liquid Jesus. Liquid Jesus. Thank you, Kelly. How could uh, you forget Liquid Jesus? I just. It, Otherwise I, known as Liquid Cheese Whiz. it's
2: <laughs> <laughs> great on a cracker.
1: Mm. But now it's uh, it's eight months later and the album has been released uh, the band has just wrapped up a month of tour dates and Kelly has been kind enough to come back. We're going to go through this record. We're going to talk about how it came to be and um, we're going to have some interesting stuff going on. So Kelly, thanks for coming back and joining us again. Yay!
2: Yay! <laughs> you forgot
3: to dub in the applause from the, the crowd. Absolutely. You know, it's my pleasure. Thanks Thanks for having me.
1: So you, you mentioned we were before we were talking that this is your first time You you just got off tour um, For a month When was the last time Before we get into the record When was the last time That you've done a tour This extensively uh, For an album
3: Um Actually Not that long ago um, I think I think Last time we were talking I mentioned I was playing with that kid Hyrule for a little while Okay It was like me and, Me and one of the Blood brothers And one of the guys From uh At the driving Slash Mars Volta. And uh, 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 one of the two guys from uh, Idiot Pilot. You remember them? Seattle Band? No. What were they called? Idiot what? Idiot Pilot. No. Yeah, it was, it was two guys. Um, the, the main guy, like songwriter, musician, uh, who also played with me in Hiro. His name's Daniel Anderson. We're actually like really good friends. He's moved down here to L.A. over the last couple of years. Mm. Uh, extremely talented kid We all kind of met through Ross Robertson Put the whole project together
1: Gotcha You're okay with being on a, a tour bus For a month, that's not a big deal for you Anymore That's just uh...
3: um, You know, I mean I'm I'm not really a spring chicken anymore It gets, it gets tiring um, Especially the failure stuff Because we're playing like Hour and a half Hour and 45 minute long sets so a month is good, and then it's nice to have a week off and just kind of, like, let your body rest and rebuild
1: before you go back out again. Yeah, we need to talk about that, because when you came to Columbus, uh, where Keith and I saw <laughs> mm-hmm. you, that was a, uh, uh, that was what we would call, we, we were left wanting more. I think it was a nine-song, 40-minute set. Um, oh, yeah.
3: Opening for James. Yeah. Opening for yeah. Janes.
1: Which is yeah. which is fine. I wasn't yeah, expecting I think, the uh the punk band to open before you guys. I thought you guys would be going on and then, you know, playing like an hour, hour and ten or something like that, and then James would be going out, but there was like a punk rock band that played before you. Um Yeah, what were they called? Oh, they were kind of
3: cool. They sounded like a uh like a fifteen year
4: old Danzig band. That's what yeah. they are. I think that's yeah, the what they are. Uh, they're like uh yeah, they're all a bunch dumb. of like teenagers. And they're yeah. brothers. Yeah.
3: Yeah. oh they're brothers too wow I didn't know that yeah
1: they're from Detroit I believe and they're all under the age of 20 and wow. um so they were called uh oh, cool. they're called I can't remember that's I because I neither can I because I, I was sort of annoyed I was like I got there I'm like all right it's time for failure and then punk band from Detroit no. is playing and I'm like no what what is this
3: they so we're, cool, we're gonna they killed it
1: they, they were a good band actually I, I we were down close to the stage and there was the changeover between them and you guys, and um, my wife was like, "What was that band called?" And this this couple was next to us, and they were like, "They were called so and so," which I can't remember right now. We drove all the way from like Cleveland to see them. We saw them on Later with Jules Holland, and we love them. I'm like, oh, wow. you must be the only two people in the in the crowd that drove from Cleveland to see just the opening band. I can't imagine <laughs> yeah.
0: that. What are
3: they called? They had kind of uh, one of those like weird, sort of obvious eighty punk rock band names too. Uh, I don't. They, they were cool. They, they actually they did uh, I think uh, two or three of those shows um, with us, us and uh, James.
1: I want to say Mackie, but that's not right. It was something like that. Like it ended with yeah. a Y. And anyway, we're we're digressing. We need to uh, we need to talk about the new record, which by the way we put it up on our Facebook page and our Twitter and our, and our website that mm-hmm. we're going to be doing this record near universal praise. Uh, things like defied expectations from Matthew Barnes fucking delivers is what he says. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to censor myself on that. Um,
2: oh, yeah. let, it out, man. let it out.
1: I'm letting it all out.
2: <laughs>
1: all right. <laughs> Eric Grubb right said now. it was great. Um, uh, Joe Roiland, who I believe uh, you might have run into at uh, a show, I think there was a picture with him on the internet and uh, and the band. Um, he runs; he's uh, the Sit and Spin Video Cast. Uh, again, said oh, yeah. incre- incredible. Yeah. So a lot of positive feedback for this record. Were you concerned at all going into it? Were you thinking based on the critical claim and and the sort of not legend, but the, the, the status that fantastic planet has gained since its release. Was there any concerns when you guys started working on the record about living up to that standard?
3: No, I mean, nothing that people may have thought about stuff like that on the inside. I don't, I don't really think so. Definitely nothing we ever said out loud. Um, and, I I don't think that that expectation would come anywhere near rivaling the expectation that we each just already have of ourselves when we're doing anything. Okay. Um, And, you know, I, 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 yeah, no, I don't, I don't really think so. I mean, we're, we're not really, we're not really wired like that, that something like that would concern us. You know, I think our main concern was just not making a crappy record,
2: right? you know, uh,
3: sort of living, living up to, you know, the standard that, you know, each of us, like we, we have pretty high standards of ourselves. Um, and that's something we definitely talk about and we're, we're very serious about, um, but never like, oh my God, I, you know, hope we can make a record, you know, that lives up to that and. You know, I think I think we all knew that we'd be able to do that. How do you
5: guys decide like what's what's worthy, what's what's good enough, or even like what a failure song is? How do you guys come to a decision on that?
3: Well, I mean, before before we started the record, like when we were getting ready for the L. Ray show, uh, we took like I don't know, probably three weeks where we got together like three or four times a week and we did nothing but jam. I mean, we're definitely not a jam band, but we, in those sessions, um, you know, just this this thing happens that always happens. I mean, we kind of approach each record, um, or at least that part of it, in a similar way, where we get together and just sort of unconsciously play together and try and rebuild that language. Um, But we Mm -hmm. came up with, like, 30 hours worth of ideas. Wow. Um. You know, I I think when that happened, we definitely knew that we were able to do what we do. Um, And it was very obvious that it was better than it was before, just because of our personal relationships um, were much better. The way we communicated with one another was much better. Um, And we've each done so much stuff, you know, since the breakup of the band and all of that, you know, we've... individually had to bring to the table Mm -hmm. um so i I think we just by getting together we started in a place that we were going to make something better than we had before
5: are those jams all all just music or are there any vocals kind of incorporated into the ideas initially
3: um there there's like some mumbling and stuff here and there but vocals vocals are usually the last thing to get added um like even even when we're like when we record a song like, sometimes we went through those recordings. We we sort of made, like, what we thought was the greatest hits, like a three-hour version of that. <laughs> um, and, and after we finished each song, we would kind of, you know, on our own, listen to little bits and pieces of that. And, you know, maybe I would go, oh, there's something really cool here at, like, you know, the 13-minute mark. Um, or Greg would, you know, play something that he remembered from those sessions or had just listened to. Um, but we, all of the songs kind of start like not, Some of the songs started with ideas That we literally just came up with It's like, oh, okay, we're going to work on a new song Hey, I've got this thing um, You know, and we just sort of build it From start to finish We record the entire song Before we move on to the next one Wow, uh, that's We different. do the drums the first 24 to 48 hours
5: For one song
3: Per song, yeah
5: Yeah, yeah
3: you know, sometimes it takes me, you know, five or ten minutes. Sometimes it'll take up to, you know, two hours, maybe three or four hours. Usually the, the longer it takes means we're still arranging it and writing a drum part.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, but sometimes I just kind of happen to wander on the perfect thing to play. You know, and, and that- get sussed out like pretty quickly, which is cool because it gives them more time to sort of experiment with, you know, musical stuff to add on top of it. And then vocals, um, vocals this time took the longest because, um, you know, you have to write the lyrics and stuff as well. Right. Um, but it was, you know, usually like between four days and a week, a song, 10 days.
5: So you don't like, uh, kind of get to a point with a song where you feel like you are just, you hit a wall, um, no, and kind of set it aside. No,
3: I think the, the, the closest we came to that was um, that song "Counterfeit Sky." Mm-hmm.
2: Um,
3: we were we we worked out the song and the arrangement and everything. Um, you know, we show up at like nine in the morning, worked out the song, worked out the arrangement. It was like one, two in the afternoon, and we started doing drums. And I hadn't eaten anything, and I was starting to feel like kind of weird and shaky. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, we tried to cut drums for it anyway, and probably about 20 minutes in, I was just like, "Yeah, this isn't gonna work. Let's let's do this tomorrow." I'm really kind of out of it. Mm-hmm. That was the closest that something like that kind of happened. Wow. Otherwise, it was just like full steam ahead on everything. It was it was really really easy, honestly. There was no labor. Um, it just seemed really, really fluid, very extreme of consciousness. Everybody showed up every day with their A-game. Much easier to record than Fantastic Planet was. Like light years beyond where where my my ability to keep up, you know, writing and ranging a song so quickly and recording the drum part, um, it drove me nuts 15 years ago. It was a lot of stress.
5: So this process was pretty much the same. It's just easier for you to, for you and I guess the rest of the guys to kind of work within it. Mm-hmm. Is that what you're saying?
3: Yeah. I mean, and, yeah. and again, I mean, it's just our, our experience. I mean, I, I spent six years like recording five days a week at Linda Perry's place where it was like, hey, I got a new Christina song. She'd play mm-hmm. it for me and then we have to start recording. And mm-hmm. if I can't write and record, then i get fired. You know, so I had a lot of practice you know, this time around at being in the hot seat, you know, the hot seat isn't so hot anymore. It's gotcha. a lot cooler and easier and just really natural to do
4: things that way. Keith, what were you going to ask? <laughs> I was just going to make a comment that they couldn't hit like Jimmy John's order button when he was playing, doing his drum tracks, get him something to eat, you know? I mean, <laughs> God, guys yeah. working on, working hard, they can't get him a sandwich while he's, you know, get him, get him through the takes. <laughs> But, you know, <laughs> you, couldn't, you couldn't do that in the 90s, but now you can. It's it's a lot easier. Oh, just order from,
1: Yeah, order from your phone. Yeah. Exactly. I, I want to start at the top of the record. So when we talked to you back in January, um, you had talked about there was mm-hmm. going to be segues on the record. And, yeah. you know, of course there are. And it actually starts with Segway 4. So there's obviously, your, there's a nod to... Fantastic Planet, with it ending on Segway 3 and this one starting on Segway 4. At what point in the actual process of, you know, arranging the record and, and putting everything in, in order, did you guys decide, we're going to consciously connect this to the put the last record and start with Segway 4 as opposed to Segway 1 or, or some other title?
3: Um, I, I mean, we knew we wanted, we were going to call them Segways. I don't think we actually decided... For sure that we were going to start with segway four um, until probably the week before we started writing them like we, we finished all of the songs and then we did uh greg and i were in one room and we set up a little recording studio where the segways were written and recorded and ken was in the other room mixing the record
2: hmm, okay um, so that
3: was at the very end of the record and I, I remember we were kind of talking about, you know, we were a little bit bummed out. Um, the subject of Magnified, the reissue came up. Um, I don't know if you guys remember, uh, whoever bought those masters and decided to re-release the vinyl, chopped off one of the segways. Right. Um, because back then, they weren't uh, individual tracks. They were actually part of the the songs like they weren't formatted individually like we started to do on fantastic planet um which actually makes it even grosser because that means if someone accidentally chopped off a part of the song
5: weird um yeah. but
3: we were talking about it then how we were a little bummed that it would have been cool if they were numbered back then and then you know we'd pick up on fantastic planet with the numbers and then you know pick up now so we could have tied all three records together but we, we, I think right before we were, we started writing and recording the Segways, um, which was somewhere in like the last uh, two to four weeks of actually finishing the record. Um, that was deciding. I think maybe Greg was pretty determined, that that sounded like a really good idea. And we all pretty much agreed. So Hot Travelers is
1: the first track, I guess you'd say, on the record. Um, was this mm-hmm. born out of those jam tapes that you guys did or was this, did this come along later in the process?
3: No, actually, uh, I'm pretty sure that that riff came from, did you, do you see those, uh, uh, those pledge updates that we were doing? Like those really slick, uh, three, five minute movies that we were yep. making at the beginning of the pledge thing. Yeah. Um, in one of those, we, we kind of, at first, we were going to uh, play one of the songs live. Um, I think it was Adam City Queen. We were going to play it live, and we spent a day like filming or playing that live in the studio. And the footage didn't really come out the way Ken wanted it to. Um, so we went back and we just kind of jammed and filmed that. And uh, that main riff for Hot Traveler was from that. Just making shit up while we were in the studio.
1: Wow. Okay. Uh, the breakdown of that song is interesting. You kind of do like a drum solo, I would say, sort of. Yeah. In, the, in that. What, yeah. So in it's, did... it's a weird time. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, and it's. I just thought it was kind of funny that the lead track on the new album has a drum solo. The very first song, thought that was a a, a pretty yeah. a, a bold statement. No, but there's there's a really interesting um, part to that where sort of buried in the background, it almost sounds like there's circus music or something going on. There's like this, uh, I, I don't know if it's keyboards or if it's a guitar part, but it's it's sort of buried in the transition between your the end of your solo and then into the the final chorus part. that something um, that Greg
3: does. Yeah. Well, that—that's—it's—it's also—it's um, mostly that thing, that little segue that starts the song. Okay. That weird noise that's bubbling underneath the bass part coming in. Yep. It's pretty much that same thing, but it has some of the um, uh, the sort of sound design stuff that's going on in the bridge with it. Okay. Um yeah, you know, and Ken might have put like, you know, a little extra flavor on it to make it sound a little bit more psychedelic. It reminds me of the weird you nailed it, the weird circusy kind of thing that happens underneath uh um Segway One on Fantastic Planet.
2: Yeah.
1: Again, another callback to the to the, the previous record. I, I when this set was released, you guys released this as a single um we were yeah. actually doing an interview like that same day with Steven Brodsky of Caven, And um oh, I remember cool. Yeah, and we we well and of course, you know, Fantastic Planet came up. That was a, an influence on Steven with like the Jupiter album and going forward for cave In. Um yeah. but we we I think Jay remarked how humongous the drum sound on this song. Yeah. Do you remember kick,
5: that? The kick drum is it sounds like um like when you're in a a really good small club and they got a big PA system, kind of that that drum sound. Mm -hmm. What's going on there? How did you get that?
4: Ken Andrews. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I guess he knows a Uh, thing or two about drum sounds, maybe.
2: Yeah.
3: Honestly, for for me as a drummer, all I have to do is show up and play um, because between Ken and Greg... I know that they're not going to let anything make it on a record that doesn't, like, make me sound really, really good. Right. Which is, I, you know, when you work with somebody else to have that kind of trust in their opinion, you know, makes it so much easier that I don't have to sit there and second-guess every single thing I do. So
5: there wasn't... Um, but
3: it, you know, drum sounds, all of that stuff, like, I literally had not a single word to ken about it like his ability to make me sound really good is like i that's the one thing that's been missing my entire career is ken
2: you know
3: yeah no complaints live too like i'm just well i was so gonna crazy. say
4: that was the um because i think that was your your opening track and your opening song in columbus and i was kind of blown away how the drums I mean it just sounded like because I think Jay made a good point the drums on the record sound like a live kit and then the drums live sound like they do on the record which was kind of amazing because that's mm-hmm. you know that obviously that bass riff comes in but the drums just hit you in the face as soon as that song starts and that was kind of mm-hmm. a I was really impressed with just how just amazed how good everything sounded live yeah. uh, but-
3: that, that Dave Gomez, our sound guy, is, like, the fourth member on the road. That kid is a genius. Like, what he does with a live band is just, I'm totally beside myself. And that's, if you, like, look around, the one thing that every single person who comments on the live shows, they always say, oh, my God, that is the best show I've ever heard in my life.
1: I wouldn't disagree. <laughs> Who, yeah, who, but it, who I mean, it, it,
3: it, it's definitely Dave Gomez, but we also, again, like, we put so much time and effort into choosing our gear. You know, so- by the time it goes out to the sound guy, like, it already, like, it already sounds, like, pretty good. We basically put a recording studio on a live stage.
1: And then, and then Ken and Greg are using the, uh, the effects that are all digital and the amps that are all digital? when you guys are touring
3: yeah well there's no amplifiers it's all the uh axe effects
1: axe effects that's right
3: yeah yeah that's why like we we don't have any amps or anything on stage everything is in ears um all of the extra sounds um are main stage um and it's main stage fractals and a drum set and then are you playing to a click no Okay. Absolutely not. I would say that again. I am not. I think it's performed live. Like all the samples I play are played in real time. So well, I just I'm asked because playing, uh,
1: I saw there was a set list and it had. It looked like it had what beat, beats per minute. Um, is that just to um, give you yeah. a like a guide?
3: Yeah, I'm not sure. No, because I don't even get that set list. Oh, okay. Um, I I have to because I'm playing a lot of live samples and stuff. So I have to be playing every song at the tempo that it's supposed to be played at. Otherwise the samples would be out of time. Right. Um, I have like a little, I don't know if you can notice from the crowd perspective, I have like a little iPad to the left of me
2: underneath
3: my sample pad. And at the beginning of each song, uh, what happens is there's this thing called set list maker on there. And uh, when Ken hits his patches for the next song, it changes my set list for the next song. And there's a little flashing light on there, that basically it counts off like the light counts off the, the exact tempo of the song. Ah. Oh. So I get like a little visual uh, four count before I start the song.
2: Okay. So
3: that's so kind like, of as close as we come to there being any, you know, this. That's my like click track. So right. I've got four beats to get it right. Right. But there's no. No audio playing inside my ears, other
5: than fan Gotcha. Well, we're At, after this many dates. If you had that pinging sound and you're blaring through a headset, you'd be even worse off than you are now. <laughs> you'd yeah. probably be in you'd probably be in an insane asylum.
1: Of <laughs> listening yeah, to that. I ping, ping, not.
5: ping, 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 ping.
1: Yeah, that'd be rough. Um, that let's.
3: Would, that wouldn't be cool. No
1: let's uh let's talk about am amnesia and I think uh, we have a, a caller who wanted to uh, chime in on this song caller are you there I am where uh, who's this and where are you calling from this is Brian from Philadelphia hey Brian uh, we've got Kelly Scott from failure along with uh, Keith J and uh, Tim from dig me out uh, how you doing this evening
3: I'm doing well it's great you got everybody hey man thanks for calling you had a question. Um, I had a, well, I had a statement and then a question. So the, my statement is that I think AM amnesia is the best song in the new album. And the question is why oh. wasn't that the first single? Oh,
2: um,
3: <laughs> that's a good question. I'll have to pass that on to the person with the singles. Ah. Um, <laughs> you know, I, uh, I, I agree with you. I, I I wouldn't call it the best song. I would definitely call it like one of the the three strongest songs. Um, you know, it was that Hop Traveler. Um, for a while, we were thinking about maybe putting mohol and Drive out. Um, you know, I really also like Otherwear because it was just so tough and dirty. Um, you know, I mean, it, it's hard. It's hard. I don't I don't think you. From a band perspective, I mean, you love them all the same. Um, so reducing writing and recording a record like your baby over, you know, a six-month period to one song
2: um,
3: is, I, I would hope, always going to be a very difficult thing. Um, because, I mean, I don't think there's any song on a failure record that screams, oh, this is like your single and you're going to sell a boatload of records because of it. You know we make albums um and uh you know maybe am is next i mean I, I definitely agree with you it's one of my favorite songs on the record and it's super strong and super catchy um i think maybe we felt that it was a little bit more to digest than hot traveler um so as a first song hot traveler probably made more sense to us you know and we get a lot of input from people you know, whose job it is to determine, you know, what radio and internet people are most likely to play. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they get it right. Sometimes they get it wrong. Okay. Uh, I, can I just say one more thing? Go right ahead. Which is that um, yeah. wh- but why I like that song so much is that nobody else could have written it but failure. And if I had to play one song for someone, it would have been that.
2: It's
5: nice, definitely- so Thank you. It's definitely the moment on the record, the first moment on the record, you say, oh, yeah, this is a fail record. I mean, I think Hot Traveler sounds new, new in some ways for the band, but definitely yeah. Amnesia yeah. is like, OK, yeah, this is this is right
1: on. Exactly. Yeah.
3: Hot, Hot Traveler has almost all has all a groove
1: things. to it, which is unusual.
3: Um, yeah, it's uh, sexy and yeah. Couch.
5: Yeah. Kel- Kelly, what are you doing grooving?
3: <laughs> you know we wanted to give the kids something to make babies too <laughs> or not they could or to practice making babies too.
1: there you go practice there you go yeah uh I, in terms of am amnesia here's the thing i'd say if this was like 94 or 95 i think am amnesia uh-huh. would be a, a clear like number two single um i could see the video being made by like you know, Sam Bayer or somebody like that, like there's a, there, that is a, a very like clear number two single that could come off the record. But Hot Traveler to me has the more, I guess, accessible chorus. Um, it's more yeah. obvious where that is. And I think that the while I love Amnesia, I especially love how it gets a little quieter after the chorus and you can hear that very failure-esque guitar picking. Yes. That is mm-hmm. so so identifiable with the band. The chorus is a little bit more obscured um, because it's such a, a big blast of energy when you get to the chorus yeah. um, It's not quite yeah. as obvious, but I think if you were a, you know, a 94, 1995 album here, you'd have, you'd be going five singles deep and you'd be able to say, you know, touch over numb, number one, AM amnesia, number two, Mulholland drive, number three, the focus, number four, you know, you'd, you'd be able to pick out a number of singles in a row. But this landscape's a little bit different, so probably why. Mm-hmm. Five so.
3: singles deep. Yeah, and-
1: oh, yeah, five singles deep. <laughs> you know, this is a five singles record. What are they, Fleetwood we're- Mac?
3: <laughs> <laughs> we're, I mean, we're also, you know, we, um, I mean, luckily we have, like, a, a really good sized fan base moving forward. But there's, I mean, there's a whole, like, world of people out there that, you know, Despite the way it may look and seem on our small little corner of the internet, that have no idea who we are. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm.
5: Mm-hmm. What are the What you do know, you guys so talk that, about? A, that's also
3: something you know that we we had to sort of consider. You know what are what are all of those music listeners doing?
5: Gotcha. Yeah, because you mentioned uh, when you said about releasing a single, and you have some people that you kind of rely on for advice. There, you mentioned internet folks are. I can't remember exactly how you phrased it, but obviously releasing a single now, there's a different reason to do it and sort of a different criteria, right? I mean, what what are your expectations yeah. around what you're trying to do when you release a quote-unquote single?
3: Well, I mean, we are, because we have been, like, you know, we're, we're pre-internet, you know? We didn't have this stuff when we were a band back in the 90s, so you know, a, a lot of this stuff, we're still, like, kind of learning how to negotiate and, you know, are these things that we want to do? Are these things we have to do? Is this just, the, like, the streaming services and, like, releasing a single two months before your record's even out? Like, it's all really kind of weird to Yeah. us. Um, you know, so we, you know, be- beyond, like, you know, don't pick a song that obviously is you know one of our weirder songs um, you know uh, uh, with all this new technology um you know none of our, none of the three of us are like technology savvy um, I think I probably am the most um, but even that like my, my I have a very limited knowledge um, so I think we're kind of not forced but you know, for that thing, like of all I know, I only know a small fraction of what there is to know. We're all very aware of that. Um, So we, we definitely defer to people, you know, who, who know, you know, and have been around since all of this stuff started and have been working, you know, in, in that field of technology and social media, um, you know, so it's, it's a little scary and it's kind of weird, um, but I think we're we're learning how how to trust, you know, people who are supposed to know these things. Um, but at the same time, like we uh, we have a lot of um, a lot of pushing and pulling with them. Uh, we don't want anyone over exposing us, you know. We we like the vibe of the band, sort of the mystery, sort of the, you know everyone shouldn't know what we're having every day for breakfast or what the <laughs> dog's name is, or, you know, if she went number two or number one, then it's the you know what I mean? Yeah. So it gets a little crazy and there's just certain information that, you know, people don't need to know.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, you know, so we kind of have a lot of pushing and pulling with those sorts of things. Um, and, you know, sometimes we're just like, okay, well, let's just sit back and see. You know, no one really knows, you know, if you release your single two months early, is it going to help your record when it comes out? Like, there's really no way to track someone's good idea. Yeah. You know?
5: It's more um, or less, so, like, oh, you know. It's a PR trigger, right? Like, it's a reason.
2: Yeah, I mean,
3: there's just a sea of stuff out there. And, you yeah. know, even this, like podcasts, what the hey? You know.
1: <laughs> That's what we say every day, what the hey? Yeah. yeah, Brian you got anything else
3: um, Just that I'll see you guys At the electric factory and I have my fingers Crossed for uh, a fretless bass to make An appearance at some point <laughs> Nice Nice that's going to be a great show That's uh, I think the third show we're playing With home
1: yeah one of those Yeah awesome
3: And uh, 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 The band nothing is going to be on that show Too Yeah very cool thanks guys Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Brian.
1: about snow angel because that is an interesting song uh, it's track for um and i believe troy van Leeuwen came back and he he contributed some guitar for this track
3: that one actually i think uh, uh six months ago when you guys when when we were talking um we had finished we did five songs before we started doing like the l ray show and last year's tour um that was one of them um, that was one of the early tracks that Ken and Greg wrote together.
1: Okay. Um, there
3: was that one. There was uh, um, Big Trash, which uh, we changed the name to Fairlight Era. Um, there was The Focus. Um, and Drive, Greg had all of that written. Um, and there was, uh, what was the fifth one? Uh, Come Crashing. Okay. So all of those were written... Uh, Ken and Greg started to get together, um, I don't know, like January or so of 2013, Um, and in their schedules, uh, I think over like the next two or three months, they managed to get together a few times over those months and put together the demos uh, for those songs, and Ken called me in April um, to make me aware, like I didn't even know if they were getting together writing stuff. Um, so he was kind of like, Hey, Greg and I have been hanging out and I, I knew what was coming next. Um, and I think about two weeks after that phone call, we went into a studio and recorded all five of the uh, drums for those five songs. So when we went to the L Ray and that tour last year, we already had half the record done. Okay. Um, and at some point, uh, I would say... When was that? Like maybe a month after that, Troy was in town and came by and put guitar parts on, uh, I think three of those
1: five. Is he basically considered sort of like the member 3.5 or member four from going back into the nineties? Or is he just someone that, you know, you guys can bring in and he gets the vibe of the band and understands what you guys are trying to do.
3: Yeah, well, he um, – back in the day when we finished Fantastic Planet, um, I think we talked a little bit about this last time, too. I didn't want a fourth member. Right. Um, but we got so carried away with overdubs and the recording and writing of that record that uh, with technology, what it was back then, uh, we, we more or less had to have a fourth member. Um, at first, we had Paul D'Amour had just left Tool – and me, him, and Greg were working on that lust record. Mm-hmm. Um, so he he had come in a couple of times while we were rehearsing up uh, material for Fantastic Planet, and as soon as you know he we heard what a fourth guitar brought or a second guitar brought to the music, we were sold. Um, unfortunately, Paul had so much other stuff going on that he sort of, he couldn't keep up with our expectations. Um, Because we really, like, we needed to move forward and start touring. Um, And he, you know, would learn something and play it great the first time. And then the next day would, like, forget most of it, but play something else really great. Like, it was just kind of all over the place. Um, And that's when I suggested, hey, I've got this buddy, Troy. He and I have been playing together in, you know, different bands. He knows all the failure stuff. He's a brilliant guitar player um i think we could bring him in today and it would be really really easy um and, and that was true he actually um was far above my expectation there were a few songs that he was showing ken and greg how they played them wow um you know again because we write and record from start to finish, yeah. so we have to go back to
2: and everything
5: yeah i was wondering that when you're describing your writing process in my mind i'm thinking boy when you get to the end of the song you really have to kind of unravel that to figure out what the hell you played and how you're going to do it live sometimes, right?
3: Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, flash forward, we you know, obviously invite Troy. We weren't sure what we were going to do still moving forward. We thought it was just going to be maybe an EP, you know, or we didn't know. There were no shows booked or anything like that yet. Um, so we felt that we had to have Troy come in and do some guitars. Um, and then, you know, a couple weeks after that, some people heard it and some, you know, bigger plans, some more permanent plans started to get made. And, you know, now we're going to tour. Now we're going to do this show. Well, Troy can't do it. He's out on the road with Queens of the Stone Age. Um, you know, and Greg is in auto locks And it just kind of seemed uh, that we couldn't wait around for Troy and the Queen schedule. Um, because we didn't know what it was. Um, and we were already dealing with whatever scheduling we had to do with Greg and Autolux working on their new record. Um, so, you know, again, luckily technology allowed us to move beyond um, just having three guys in the band. Why you know? didn't you or want to... F- what we found out.
5: You mentioned you didn't want a fourth member initially. Why is that?
3: I love um, I love a democracy. Uh, it is always uh, so easy to solve problems um, because there's three guys. You know, one guy has an idea, the other guy doesn't like it, the third guy gets to listen to both of their points and make a decision. You know, so you tend to move beyond problems really quickly. Mm. Um, and we're we we all you know even though we don't want to sometimes because you know, people really get precious with their ideas, myself included. Um, But, you know, we know uh, the more democratic we can be, the more functional the band will be.
2: Mm. There
5: are a lot of stories Um, about...
3: It it makes sense. It totally makes sense.
5: There are a lot of stories of of bands with four members that end up creating two teams. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of... uh,
3: Yeah, I I mean, that's like... Like Congress, you yeah. know, it creates a, a, an impasse. You'll mm. never get
1: anything done. Yeah. So we got a question from Twitter, and this is going to be a, a long lead up. But a few weeks back, we talked to Chris Wise, who's the bass player for... um He was in the Cult, and he auditioned oh, yeah. for... Yeah. He he played with Paul Diamore and Chris Pink Pittman Pink. and some stuff. He auditioned for Metallica when... Jason Uh Newstead left, and he's in some some kind of monster documentary. And um, he talked about that audition process. And we had a question from uh, Virus on Twitter. He asked about your, quote-unquote, auditions for Uh A Perfect Circle and Queens of the Stone Age. First of all, are those true? Did you audition for those bands?
3: Um, I was in Perfect Circle. There wasn't really an audition. Um, It was me, Paws, and Billy. Um, and, uh, Maynard was still threatening to be in the band. He and Billy were roommates, but he was very busy in school. Um, and we kind of, uh, kicked it around in, uh, Danny's little studio for a while. Learning, you know, the songs that Chris had demoed out. Um, yeah, that went on for, I don't know, maybe like two or three months. Um, and, uh... You know, I had a bunch of other stuff going on, for sure, um, which was, you know, sort of keeping me really hard to nail down. Um, and uh, I was starting to definitely show um, some some cracks of, uh, you know, having a, a drug habit and being sort of irresponsible and flaky. Um You know, it was really weird because I one day we were playing together and the next day I just wasn't calling them back. And, you know, it was, uh, it was really kind of bizarre. It just sort of went away. I stopped showing up, you know, more or less.
5: So this is in the, the formation of the band prior to the first record, right?
3: Yeah. Oh yeah.
1: Yeah. Prior
3: to the first record.
1: So were you still in failure at this point or is this post failure?
3: Um, this is post failure okay um all the material was for that for that first record was already written by Billy um, and uh, uh, a lot of the programming was already done um, the drum programming um, so what we were working on was pretty similar to how that first record would eventually turn out uh, I think after me was Tim Alexander and then uh, Josh Freeze.
5: Hmm. yep yeah. And Queens of the Stone um, Age? Queens
3: of the Stone Age. Queens of the Stone Age, I was in Blinker the Star, um, and we had been living all the way up in uh, uh, Pembroke, Canada. And we had uh, gotten off of DreamWorks and written and recorded a record and decided that we were going to come back to L.A. to try and do something with the record. Um, and by the time we got back to L.A., I was pretty broke, and... Um, and needed to find a gig, and Troy called me and was like, "Hey, dude, uh, Grohl kind of, you know, left us with all this touring stuff and went back to Foo Fighters, and uh, Josh uh, thinks it'd be a good idea if you came down and played with us." Um, so I was full-blown drug habit. Um, showed up there. He made me learn like all like three records, or I guess at that point it was four records because I was learning the new record too. In mm. um, uh, I think I had three days to prepare, um, and I had to learn like I don't know thirty or forty songs. It was crazy how many songs they wanted me to learn. Um, so uh, I basically stayed up for the next seventy-two hours, learned all this stuff, showed up, killed it. Um, And Nick was like, oh, my God, we found our drummer. You're amazing. I love playing with you, yada, 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 yada. And Josh was like, well, hold on. We've still got two or three more auditions. Um, You know, just to be fair and respectful, you know, we need to still see those guys. Um, So I think the next day, they auditioned one person after me, which was Brent, Brent New York. Um, And then two guys the next day, by the end of the day, Josh called me and was like, cool, you're our guy. You're now in the Stone Age. Um, so we rehearsed that stuff for, I guess, like two weeks. And at some point in that two weeks, Josh and I were hanging out and he was like, well, you know, my first choice was, uh, Joey, but he, uh, is out on tour with Danzig and he has this commitment with them and like really didn't feel right to splitting. Um, flash forward, we're about to leave on tour in two days and Joey comes back in town. Hmm. And Joey goes over there and auditions with the band, unbeknownst to me at this point. <laughs> um, and uh, Josh calls me the next day. And he's like, dude, I got some bad news. And I was like, what? And he's like, well, Joey got in town two days ago. We auditioned him. And I think we're going to take him out on tour. Oh. Um <clears throat> Which was kind of a bummer because I'd given up my place and, you know, uh, Josh was really cool about it. I was a little bummed because that was the band be in at the time, obviously.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, that mm-hmm. record was amazing. Um, and just, you know, since failure, I hadn't played with anything that I could check off all the boxes, you know, and that sort of was that band. Um, and, uh, you know, one, I had immense respect that he didn't, like, you know, fuck me around or dilly-dally. Like, he called me. He was super honest, super respectful, got straight to the point, you know, and was like, what can I do to make this right? And, you know, he was super cool and super pro, and he did what I would have expected a friend to do in that position. Hmm. You know, of course I understood. It's like, you know, if, if that's the guy you want, then that's the guy you want. Yeah. You know, there's no hard feelings. You know, I have enough respect for your band that if that's your choice, you know, I want your band to be great, with or without me. Interesting. Yeah. So yeah. Well, and,
1: you know, if that had happened, there would have been other things that wouldn't have happened. Which, yeah. You know, it's always you know yeah. not taken. So. And, and Joey's not in the
5: band and, anymore
3: you know, either. So. It, yeah. I I he, he actually did me a great service. You know i i'm just i'm, I'm not going to say i wasn't bummed out um and you know my my drug intake probably doubled because i was bummed out uh, or had another good reason to be like discouraged about you know life i guess um and uh you know it was another one of those things that just brought me closer to you know eventually getting sober and you know having the best life i've ever had you know it was shortly after that actually I think maybe a year, somewhere between a year or two later that I wound up getting sober because I couldn't take it anymore.
1: Well, that's then that was a positive. So,
3: yes, I I would like to publicly thank uh, Josh Fahmy for uh, getting me to my bottom quicker.
5: (laughs) (laughs) All right, then. And now we know how to pronounce his last name.
1: Yeah, we're always (laughs) we always are mispronouncing that. Uh, thank you for yeah, that.
3: I'm, I'm pretty sure it's Tom. I'm pretty sure it's Tom.
1: Well, you've met him, so we'll take it.
5: <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> I don't think anyone will ever know. The man is such an enigma.
5: <laughs> um, did you well, play in uh, any of the uh, Desert session stuff then? If you're friends with him? No,
3: I didn't. I'm, I'm, it's funny though. I'm actually really good friends with Dave Catchings too, that runs the studio down there. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, every time we see one another, like, you know, we threaten and we promise, and, um, but it just never, you know, I'm, I'm not on their speed dial. Gotcha. You know? And I think that the, the desert session thing is kind of like, you know, a bunch of dudes hanging out going, yeah, let's do this. And they're already in the desert. Yeah. You know? So, uh, you know, I usually run into them outside of the desert right someday you know fingers crossed i would love to that whole thing is awesome that would be really really fun you just yep.
1: need to start hanging out in the desert like just sort of randomly <laughs> just wandering, <laughs> wandering around with your drum
3: kit i,
2: with your-
3: <laughs> I hate the desert it's so hot <laughs> yeah it's like oh god it's just it's too hot like i love like air conditioning and You know, mild, sunny temperature, like 70s, 80s is like my comfort zone. Um, It sounds like a guy from Boston.
5: I imagine your recording studio for this record was a hermetically sealed, air-conditioned, like lightless box for some reason.
3: (laughs) It definitely was. It was really weird to go in at 9 a.m. and come out at like 6 or 7. Right, and it's like whoa! Like this is really—it's—it's it's bizarre when you're inside all day long, and it's like night when you come out.
5: But you can kind of get lost in there, right? Like the—the the, you can make. Oh the, yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. You, de- you definitely do. Yeah, you definitely do. A
1: comfortable.
3: That's called sound-proof. my.
1: That's my last office job. Is nine a.m. and then not seeing sunlight until six p.m. That's not unusual for <laughs> people who work in an office. <laughs>
3: Yeah, no, it's and I mean it's smart. It's a great way to like be like undistracted and get things done.
1: Right. Um, Let's get back into the record. Uh, You talked briefly about Adam City Queen. Uh, You mentioned in your um, you guys did that diary series for Brooklyn Vegan uh, website, and um, you you talked about the recording process being a little bit different for this song. can you go into that a little bit? With you recorded it without symbols, is that my understanding.
3: Yeah, which um, which is actually a good segue um, because that is something that the Queens do quite a bit of, um, and we went for it because you know there, there's always this thing when you're recording drums, um, engineers, and eventually the mixer always has this sort of struggle. Between having too much cymbals in the drum mics and too much drum in the cymbal mic. Like, there's sometimes it gets really difficult to find that sweet spot, you know? Um, So, I I think that sort of spurred uh, this little experiment that we did. Um, And it's immediately noticeable as soon as you record just the drums without cymbals like they're so beautiful and warm and huge and round. And like you really get to hear the entire drum and all of the drums through the whole recording. As soon as you hit cymbals, it starts to take some of that sonic value away from it. So Um, wait,
2: hold on a second.
5: Talk about, can you talk about how, how do you play that then? I don't understand how you play a full drum part and not play the cymbals. What do you do with your right hand?
3: I usually play on my legs. I play on my leg. Uh, I have this, uh, I, I mean, I've done it forever and always, Every everyone is like, oh my God, doesn't that kill your leg? And it mm. doesn't really hurt. Like it kind of stings a little bit at first, but then it just, you know, it's not real pain. Um, it's you, just something I've always done. Like even when I warm up before shows, you know, they're just like, shit, man, that looks like it really hurt."
5: So you've got a massive um, callus on the side of your thigh. Is that what you're telling us?
3: Well, sometimes it gets black and blue. During the sessions it would be black and blue because wow. you do it over an extended period of time. And whether it hurts or not, like you're you know what is that, that makes it black and blue? You're like busting capillaries or whatever. Yeah. It's what causes the bruising. Um so yeah, I would just say on my right side.
5: Gotcha. Hmm.
3: Yeah. Um the hard part is going back and playing the cymbals and getting them to line up with the feel, because the feel of playing without cymbals is completely different.
2: Yeah, right. Like, where
3: you actually line your beats up, like, say, if you're looking at it on a grid, is totally different. Like, I tend to play more like a drum machine when I'm playing just kick and snare, like, really sort of straight up and down on the beat, but I don't play cymbals that way. I tend to play cymbals, like, either a little bit ahead or like really, really kind of laid back.
5: doing like the, the hi hat pulls like I don't understand how you would resync sync that up if you're playing it separately.
3: Um well I mean you would just like sync it up. I mean you'd be hearing the wow. snare and kick drum track through through your uh your in ears, your headphones. Yeah. And then you would play the fake snare on your other thigh okay. While you're playing like the hi hat part.
5: Okay. So you you're fully um, like you know, physically it's, it's performing a
3: yeah, it's like it's like uh, you know when they do the movies with green screen, you have to pretend that you're acting with a monster. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that sort of same thing. Like there, there's definitely a little bit of uh, using your imagination that happens.
2: Mm, very cool. Uh,
3: or suspending suspending disbelief. It's fun. It's me. I wouldn't want to do a whole record like that because you know it's you know. Sometimes when you go back there's a lot of like post work that has to be done to really line those things up to make them feel like a real drummer. Yeah. Um so you know, we, we did it we did it for that and we did it for um what other song did we do it on? Uh I think we did it in the choruses of AM amnesia. Yeah. Yeah, we did it in the choruses of AM Amnesia. Um, you know, and we try to, I mean, one thing we like to do when we're recording is sort of um, not sort of get uh, bogged down and this is the way we have to do it, you know, leaving ourselves open to new invention. Yeah. Well, AM
5: and amnesia in the course there, You I mean, you're using a lot of, it gets a little washy. So I guess I could see how that could be really nice for mastering to be able to control that Yeah, Kenny loved it. Yeah, that makes sense.
3: Um, But not enough to do it on every song. Like I said, it was a lot of post work, like going in and, you know, uh, lining stuff up, uh, you know, it's kind of a pain in the butt.
1: Yeah. So you mentioned earlier about with regards to having the iPads and live and... You know, having the digital set up and and there's no monitors or anything like that. Some people have asked us. We got a Twitter question from Brian D at B A D F three three one about if you guys are you are you guys recording every show that you're playing, both um, yeah the audio and the video. Are you recording?
3: Yes, um, uh, sometimes every now and again we're kind of like, eh, it's a little bit too much effort to put out the video camera, um, but most of the time. Um, we we certainly 100% of the time are recording audio. Like, we, I think at this point in the game, have, like, I don't know, maybe somewhere between 70 and 100 live records recorded.
1: Okay. Uh, Is there Um, any plans to do anything with that?
3: um, Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, one of the problems with, you know, having so much video and so much audio is, you know, who... Who gets to go through all that stuff? <laughs>
1: mm, right. You know, you need an intern. It's,
3: it's, yeah. Well, you know, an intern in theory sounds great, but Ken really, <laughs> really loves to work. I don't know if he could actually, I think an, an, after a day of an intern doing it, he would take it over. Yeah. You know, he loves that kind of stuff, finding the needle in the haystack. Um, I mean, that's what makes him such a, a wonderful engineer and and you know mixer.
5: Are you using uh, like multi camera shots or, or one? Yeah. camera? Yeah,
3: okay. When we well when we recorded the record, we set up like this weird. We had we had two cameras going pretty much all the time. Um, he had an intern that would come in like every day and actually film up. Um, performing parts or, you know, while we were recording. But we also had this little uh, um, iOS device thing set up where we had, like, five, um, like, uh, uh, different incarnation iPhones. I think there were, like, a couple fours and uh, a couple fives, maybe even one six, Mm -hmm. where we had them on these weird, like, uh, Wi-Fi swivel bases um, moving around us and, like, recording everything you know because we were doing that touch stuff so we were you know constantly trying to get as much footage and audio as we possibly could Mm -hmm. so we have like terabytes and terabytes and terabytes and terabytes of material and you know it's it's crazy like our our documenting is we're we're gonna have to open up an underground facility to like store
2: all this stuff
5: you're on smithsonian
1: yeah. So you guys, you're basically like both a band and an IT company. You have to have your own like servers.
2: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, pretty much.
3: Pretty much. I mean, we're looking ahead to the future for
5: sure. <laughs> well, as a fan, it's great to hear that it's it's been documented. Hopefully, you guys can right find the time to make something of it.
2: I'm yeah. i sure well, the tour it's, bus. It's a-
3: at the very least when we, you know, break up next time, like we'll have it documented as to why we broke up and how will have to act up. You have the right. exact
5: moment on video?
1: Yeah. From five different angles.
3: The lightning and <laughs> bottle.
1: In H D. There you go. Counterfeit Sky, that's the next track on the record. Wait, you wait talk so a little...
5: Hold on, hold oh, on, hold on. You whoa, skipped whoa, what? Segway. You, you skipped a segue. Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped segue five. Uh this is the one with the whistling, right? Is that what's going on? Oh in the yeah. Who's whistling? Yeah.
3: Um that's all Greg. Okay. Uh, I I I came in and played um you know that have you have you seen the the pictures in the liner notes? Yeah. Along with I
1: didn't open my album. But, I I'll confess I kept it sealed.
3: Oh. <laughs> uh, well there there's this weird ass picture <laughs> um that uh, my my wife actually took all the photos that are uh in uh inside the record in the CD. Um, I'm looking these at it now. Where I'm, wearing these, I'm like fully bearded I'm like, and I'm wearing her like Gucci sunglasses. Uh, oh, are they coach? Oh, sorry. Her coach sunglasses with these gigantic headphones on, playing the uh, sleigh bell part. Yeah, It Wait. looks like serious. Well, her, her and Greg's kid, this photo looks like I recorded the entire record by myself.
5: Wait a minute. I don't have this um, photo. So
3: yeah, you should you should check out. Is it's it in the, the vi- CD? It's in the CD booklet.
5: Oh, I, I got the uh, 180 gram vinyl. There's no.
3: Yeah, that just has the lyrics. I think.
5: Yes, it has like a one sheet of. Yeah, we
3: wanted we wanted to mix it up.
2: Oh, jeez. I... <laughs> I thought. You know, like
3: like 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 playing trading cards. It's like, well, I got
5: the lyrics. Are you telling me I like, have to go well, buy the CD, too? Well, you know,
3: that's entirely up to you.
5: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm streaming this every day. On I, I bought the 180 gram v- vinyl. I got the downloads, and I'm also streaming it every day on Apple Music. What else can I do for it? <laughs> yeah, seriously. Oh, did, you, did you sign
3: up for the Apple Music?
5: Uh, I'm using the free, free service for now just to see how I like it. How
3: oh, How is it?
5: uh so far it's it's um Uh-oh. it's okay i, I kind of love spotify but uh i'm looking yeah. to simplify things a little bit so if once they raise yeah, their limit on, on 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 the amount of songs you can store there i think i might just uh-huh. simplify and just go with that yeah i live i
3: live in a pretty max centric world
1: yeah me too I'm going to I'm going to interrupt here just for a moment. My my wife Katie just <laughs> stopped by uh to say hi. Hey. Uh she was she came to the show with me and during um I think it was during Smoking Umbrellas. Uh uh-huh. she was you know, she was this is the first time she'd been to a Failure concert like me but um she had not obsessed over Fantastic Planet the way it's I had. That's
0: true. I'm sorry. I'm uh, late.
1: So she turned oh. to me during Smoking Umbrellas and was like Oh my gosh, they're really good. And said like, why weren't they huge in the nineties?
0: I said that. She
1: said that. And I so I went into this like fifteen minute explanation about label politics and you know various things. And all of a sudden the show was over at that point when I was done talking. He's but,
0: joking. Uh, I'm
1: joking. But um no, she she's been converted into a fan here,
3: which so uh Yeah.
0: I can speak. I yeah, um, I have really enjoyed it. Thank you for a great show. What
3: one fan at a time. Thank you. It'd, yeah, it'd I wish you awful. had been able
0: to play longer. We yeah. actually, I probably yeah, shouldn't was, admit this, was... but we didn't actually stay for Jane's Addiction because I had already seen them. And yeah, we really just came for you. And we had a
1: babysitter. So.
3: Was, uh, um, I'm pretty sure by that point, because we'd done a couple shows with Jane and we kept getting these, like, the audience was like, I, I like this, but what the hell is it? Look, um, so by that point, we tried to um, sort of whittle it down to, um, I don't want to say like the least common denominator, but the more digestible of our songs. Um, so that, that was definitely the, the greatest hits
2: set.
0: Well, it was funny, you know, I've been to a lot of shows, but I felt like um, the audience was taking turns at that show because there was another mm-hmm. opener at the Columbus show. There was like this Red group of, yeah, there was like this group of teenagers. And I mean, for teenagers, they were great, but I, it's not it my style. Yeah. So, um, but like the entire pit left after their set. Like, they were obviously diehard fans of that group. And then all the failure fans were standing there for you. And then, like, we all just left. It, I've just never oh. seen, like, the audience take turns like they that. They rotated.
3: Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's pretty it, funny. It was definitely uh, uh, the soda fountain audience.
0: Hmm. Yeah, but, like choose your but it was favorite. good. It was a great show. You did a great job.
3: Yeah, and, I mean, we're very thankful. There, were I mean, there was a bit of that going on, but there was also... a quite a few people who you know for one reason or another had never heard us you know so those shows were definitely great for exposure for us too i was gonna uh, and i know like all of us all of us, and all of us really loved james addiction like back in the day like early you know hollywood like james addiction was one of the premier bands in la um so it's it's always pretty cool to play with you know a band that has like that spot in your your heart
0: that's cool. Well, I enjoyed it. Thank you.
3: Thank you. All right, that was the voice
1: of uh, "Dig Me Out," the <laughs> the, uh, the intros and all our jingles. Katie Minichi, <laughs>
2: elementary.
1: elementary music teacher. <laughs> so, where were we? Um, Connor Fitzguy. Oh yes, we're talking about Connor
5: Fitzguy.
3: Oh, Sky.
5: I thought we we're on houses. <laughs> well, no, <laughs> oh, no. Hey, you're the one. You hey. <laughs> You guys make the long records, not us. We just talk about them.
1: Yeah, we get, we get lost halfway through.
3: <laughs> this you episode will be a lot well, I mean, shorter. I
2: don't,
3: I don't know if you guys have had this experience, but I find this record a lot easier to get through also. Yeah. I agree. Um, I the first, the first time I listened to it, um, I, I was expecting like, oh, you know, this is going to be an hour and three minutes out of my life. And it went by like really, really quickly. I didn't feel like it was a long time.
5: I think there's more um, maybe momentum shifts on this record than um, Fantastic Planet, which helps the ups and downs kind of keep you engaged in it and focused. So, yeah, I would totally agree. Even though, like, uh, I haven't looked at the totals, but how overall uh, length, how do the two compare? Do you know off the top of your head?
3: Um, I think it's only a few minutes shorter than Fantastic Planet. I'm pretty really? sure it's like around 63 minutes.
2: Yeah.
3: And I think Fantastic Planet is 67. Um, it's five minutes longer. Just below, yeah, it's just below the allottable time to put on a CD.
5: Very close. I,
3: I, I remember that being a cause for concern when we were uh, like trying to turn Fantastic Planet from you know, these recordings into an actual CD that people could go and buy. Um, a, a lot of people are worried about that, whether they'd be able to fit the whole thing on
1: there. All right. We have to, we have to like, we got to start doing these songs faster. Cause we're at like the hour and a half mark and we've only had song six. So we're going to have to, uh, right. we're going to be here. We have to, we're going to be here for like four more hours. Cause you guys do 18, well, we can... 19 song. Uh, or we can do them in bunches. Let's can, do another,
3: uh... another, uh, um, Uh,
1: podcast for the segues yeah we'll just do a podcast for the segues (laughs) that's a good idea best of the segues segues. um actually at some you know i'm assuming that you're gonna do two more records and then break up since you did three and then the band broke up you do three now then you break up you should be able to compile then an entire greatest hits of just segues at that point you should have about 25 of them
3: We've already discussed that, eventually making a record of just Segway,
1: like a double record at least. <laughs> sort of like that Nine Inch Nails instrumental uh, like four album set that came out, and it was just like a minute and a half of all little instrumental pieces. There you go. Oh,
2: that's
3: kind of a cool idea. I don't know if I, yeah. uh, I'm not that rabid of a Nine Inch Nails fan.
1: You have to be pretty rabid to want to listen to minute and a half long snippets of basically demos of... Yeah keyboard noodling
5: on uh counterfeit sky. I noticed, um, the drums are, I don't know, a little bit more nuanced. Uh, I guess you're playing a lot of like ghost yeah. notes and kind of drags on the snare and thing things. Is that, mm-hmm. I don't know, is that uh, something that you would have done fantastic planet era or is that, you know, an evolution of your playing to this point?
3: Um, you know, I, I, there, there's definitely a different, uh, I guess a different feel that I haven't, um, put on any of the other material. Like mm-hmm. that one really stands out as far as, um, just the, the way I played that song. I played it a lot softer. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't do that normal where, you know, I, I try and build the song throughout. I let the music do that. But I, I think, I do do a lot of that nuanced stuff. I actually do that on pretty much every song we've ever recorded. I think hmm. the way that Ken recorded that song and that I played so lightly compared to all the other songs, which which helped him um, definitely put a, 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 a different treatment on you know the way the drums would gotcha. appear in the mix. Um, but all of those things, like if you really put on a pair of headphones and listen to all of the other songs. Like i am mm-hmm. a ghost on the I always have been. Yeah. Um, because I try and keep the meat of the song really, really simple. Um, but I also, you know, I also do little things like that to keep myself interested, you know? Gotcha. Um, mm. You know, and that kind of stuff always, it stays out of the way of what the music's doing. You know, which is a very important thing to me like I don't I, I, I can't stand when like it feels like the drums are making the music do something um, I, I prefer when it feels like we're a cohesive unit um, just sort of you know plotting in directions together
5: sure I,
2: you know I think what I it's
5: mean? yeah I think it's the uh, on this track it's those I, I can't figure out the pattern but you're kind of doing like these quick double snare hits sometimes well, when i picked it's different.
3: it, it's different every single time
5: okay i couldn't um, yeah, adam, I... adam
3: city that, that snare part in the verses of adam city it never yeah. repeats okay and it literally it's different every single those are the kind of things i mean like i like yeah um, i like to keep it really really interesting but i don't want you to be distracted by me right. trying to be interesting. right you know what i, I mean? don't
5: i only noticed it when i really focused you know um yeah i would he-
2: hear a couple of those a lot,
3: and- there's a lot of those kind of subtleties like i'll use um you know e- even on like pillowhead like going into the choruses on pillowhead you know there's mm-hmm. that flatten and button and going into the first one and then i turn it up a notch and do it like for the second one you know i mean there's always like little things like that um you know, I, I I don't know. I mean, that's just kind of the way I sort of intuitively navigate, you know,
5: and, and Mm -hmm. feel things. Yep. It's cool because, uh, you're playing now it makes sense because I think you're playing so light. It's almost, uh, sounds like a, a delay on the snare, but you know, I, I, I have no doubt you're, you're actually playing it, but it's, it's, it's an interesting effect in terms of, uh, because you're playing it so light, it's, kind of draws you in, and then you realize all this other detail on the drums that, you know, uh, I hadn't quite noticed before.
3: Yeah, it's well, it's a lot easier to play when you're playing light, and the drums actually do sound better. Mm-hmm. Um, I think overall on this record, I played a lot lighter. Like, I, I certainly don't record like I play live. Like, live is a completely different thing. But there, there's definitely a lot more subtlety and velocity from song to song. Um, But in general, I play, you know, heavy, but not, like I said, like live. Yeah. Um, You know, because I want the drums to sound good. Um, counterfeit Sky almost reminds me of Smashing Pumpkins a little bit. Hmm. The vibe of it. Um, Just the way they could play like really heavy stuff, but it was like sort of heavy and soft and jangly. Um, you know, and Jimmy Chamberlain was a really good rock jazz drummer, you know, Mm -hmm, he had this thing about his playing, um, where he was definitely into like the really jazzy sort of subtle ghost notes and, you know, he, he's never a hard player. Mm -hmm. Um, it kind of reminds me of that a little bit. The and, and the is and the bridge is, you know, definitely very failure.
5: Yeah, it gets pretty, It gets loud and epic. Do you tune your yeah. own drums?
3: Oh yeah, of course.
5: Okay. Do you tune them different for the
3: studio yeah, than I, live? Um, I no, I pretty much tune them. I pretty much tune them the same live as I would in the studio. Yeah, it's pretty similar because I want us to sound live like the records. Um, even more so now like even even this time like live i really went back and learned how to play my own part uh whereas on fantastic planet um you could hear me play the songs like completely different from night night. um i I wasn't into i always kind of poo-pooed on like oh i'm not gonna learn that like i want it to be cool and i don't want to play the same thing twice and you know, frankly, it's really difficult to, like, learn all of those little things. hmm You know, especially when you're not conscious of them, when you're writing and recording them. Um, because they, they come from you being in a specific vibe.
5: Yep. You know? But people learn those um, things when they listen to the record and kind of expect them, right?
3: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think. I don't know. I mean, I, I never heard anyone. I Do anyone, you? Know, <laughs> do you?
5: Well, yeah, I mean, you get really intimate with a record and you expect, you know, there's, you start to pick up on all those details. And when you see the band live, right, there's some of them that you want to hear, you know?
3: I always think of it like, uh, um, like Led Zeppelin. I mean, it's one of my favorite bands and they never played the same thing twice live. Yeah. You know, that's cool too. And uh, yeah, it just seemed to be like, especially back in the day on Fantastic Planet, like it, It was really exciting for me to just kind of go for it and never know what was going to happen or whether I would, you know, effectively be able to pull something off, you know, flying by the seat of my pants every night. Right. But I, you know, in in saying that, like, I I have a, a great appreciation for learning how to play our songs exactly the way we recorded them. You know, it's just, it's consistent from night to night. You know, I know
1: when I've had a good performance and when I've had a bad performance. Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier about some of the songs, the, the the group of songs that were written before you came back in, like um, Snow Angel and and The Focus and those songs. There are a couple songs mm-hmm. that are, are actually older failure songs from the 90s. Um, track eight, Petting the Carpet is one of them. What made you guys yeah. want to revisit Older demos that were um from the nineties.
3: You know, I, I think it was part of uh you know, Greg was really an instigator, I know, on Petting the Carpet. Uh, I know there were a few people like online that really wanted to hear Petting the Carpet because it didn't ever make it on a record. Uh I know the song was written and recorded during the comfort sessions. Um and I think part of it was like, you know, that was a really great song. It should have wound up on a record. And another part of it was, you know, how awesome that song would be if we did what we do now to it. You know, like writing a bridge for it. You know, instead of like just pushing a button and, you know, making the song swirl around for eight bars and then unpushing the buttons and there's the song again. <laughs> you know what I mean?
2: You just um, gave away the secret un- of the bridge. Definitely-
3: Yeah, it was definitely some unfinished business, you know, with that one. Um, And I think as soon as we started working on it, you know, it was obvious that um, it wasn't going to be a version where we felt like we were playing a failure cover, you know. It was really exciting and felt just as viable as anything else that we had worked on up to that point.
5: Yeah, it definitely fits in with the rest of the record, no doubt, but it it certainly stood out as um, having a more let's say vintage sound or earlier sound. Um, It, it, uh, it sounds like to me, a song that was maybe written on bass. Do you, do you know if that's the case just because that line is so uh, (laughs) unique? It it, it just seems like the thing that maybe the song started with. I, you know,
3: I, I couldn't tell you with absolute certainty, but I would say it would be a lot easier to write that guitar part around that bass part than right. the other way around. Right. It makes sense that the crazy bass part would have to come first. Mm-hmm. And then a simple guitar line over top of it to kind of you know nail it down to the ground and make it a little less Japan.
2: Yep.
3: Um,
5: I feel like there's a lot more gain on the bass on this record too, which really adds to the sound. Um, it makes it
3: Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, and well, we, we, we were very conscious of recording a, a, a record of a three-piece band. You know, mm-hmm. we, we needed to be able to play this stuff live. That was definitely a concern going into it and coming out of it. Um, so the bass had to get bigger and wider and growlier. You yeah. know, there was more space for it to fill out.
5: Mm-hmm. It can um, start to fill out. A second guitar almost like that that audio spectrum right it it's not only bass but it's also giving you that middle kind of frequency um
3: it has a stores. lot of support
2: yeah. yeah
3: it doesn't uh because the bass is so gigantic you don't get the van halen effect when the guitar drops out from playing rhythm you know what i mean the van halen mm-hmm. effect yeah yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah i've never heard it called that before but yeah that's
3: I mean that's one of like the first bands I I remember, you know, noticing like, oh, whoa, there's no
5: guitar overdub. Yeah, right. It's incredible. Even even to this day, those records, like, uh, you know, them and any other band, uh, Jimi Hendrix. You know, you go back and listen to the way they were recorded and just the simplicity of it. It's incredible. If you get the if you yeah. get the tones right and the playing right, you really don't need yeah. much more than three guys, or you know, three yeah, girls. Yeah, the three early people.
2: Aussie stuff too.
3: Yeah.
5: The
2: Randy
3: Rhodes stuff like that. Like that stuff's crazy.
1: Yeah. were you guys towards the end and like said, Well, we need a we need another song or two, so let's go back and listen to some demos of older stuff, or or was it sort of more organic than that? Did you just sort of did Greg bring it up sort of while you're in the middle of recording? At what point did you guys decide to go back and revisit this song?
3: I think uh Shoot, I can't remember the order, but if I'm not mistaken, I think I can see houses. And the recording of that happened first. Um, one because that song was never recorded. The only the only version of that song appears on Golden, um, in this right. really weird like uh, uh, VHS video camera taping of them playing at Club lingerie in the really really early '90s with uh turns out one of ken's friends holding the camera and like narrating about some party that you know they're going to um and you never get to hear the end of the song you know that song was kind of like cool and mysterious and it seemed like if we were to do that it would likely turn into something that felt like you know failure 2015 um and which I mean, it definitely did. If you listen to that and then listen to what we did on the recording, like you know, that's sort of like our uh, our small crimes, our heliotropic, like that epic, epic song.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
3: you know, that kind of patiently goes on for seven minutes.
5: Talking, speaking of slightly epic, Mahal Holland Drive reminded me of. Uh, I think it was, a, yeah, it was the second song I heard from the record. And this is the one that, you know, kind of threw me for a loop a little bit. It was unexpected. It, it reminded me of, I guess, ELO <laughs> in some ways. like Yeah. yeah, 70s kind of ballad Beatles influence, yeah. but with a little bit. Uh, Pink Floyd. Yeah. Can you yeah, talk about ELO that song a little bit? Pink
3: Floyd and the Beatles. Yeah, ELO is basically the Beatles and Pink Floyd mixed together. A right, pop. right. Very popular. Way. It, it had
5: some like John Bryan elements to it as well, which I, I appreciate yeah. i a fan of him.
3: Some Harry Nielsen like a lot of that cool '70s, like playful, mm-hmm. um, psychedelic. Um, see, when I when I heard it, I definitely got all that, but it didn't it, it didn't seem like it stood out that much from what we do because we had the nurse who loved me.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: You know, it, it really reminds yeah. me of sort of that same vein of song. Um, so there was never a point where, you know, when I first heard it, I fell in love with it. I was like, holy shit. Like, Yeah. Greg really wrote an amazing song.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and it was super, super fun to play on, especially, like, I, I love, like, being able to sort of exit what we do and get in the mindset of, like, You know, I wish I had been born at an age where I could have played drums in the 70s. So I love playing that big pop, like less is more, um, you know, kind of just huge drums and really orchestrated. Um, That was a really, really fun song to play. And super difficult. I, I made the mistake of when we did that five song session, I thought that would be the easier one. So I saved it for last um and it really that was the one song in that session that i had a lot of difficulty with because it's so slow. Mm. And you know, anyone that knows like playing slow is way more difficult than playing fast.
5: Yeah. You got to have the feel right and you got to be kind of in the mode, right? You
3: just Well, and there's just so much space in between yeah. each note like you don't you don't have uh, like time is no longer supporting you,
2: mm-hmm.
3: you know, because there is so much space in between each beat. Um, normally, as you play faster and like your, you know, your hi hat counting off eighth notes or quarter notes, or there's less space in between each beat, so like all of your support system is there. Um, is it- you know, because there's more beats keeping you in place per bar. Uh, is there more really, really slow stuff? it gets really easy to lay back too far or um, more often than not um, uh, rush ahead mm-hmm. of everyone else. But, I mean, I, you know, I love a challenge. I mean, you know, it wasn't like I was pulling my hair out or about to cry, but yeah. I couldn't record it. Um, it. It just it proved to be more challenging than I thought it would be at first listen. Um, but granted, when I went into that session, I had never played any of these songs. I just listened to the demos and learned the arrangement, and sort of, you know, what happened happened when we got into the studio and started recording drum parts for
1: it. There's a part in that song; um, it's in the, it's about the 2:55 mark to get real specific, but it's during the one of the <laughs> choruses um, that uh, there is a run that uh, everybody sort of locks in together and goes bump, 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 bump. It sounds yeah. like it's off of, like, Abbey Road. I mean, it, it is a – and I know that, you know, Keith and Jay and I were actually all in a band together, and I know that there would be parts where we would write something or something would happen while we were jamming, and you'd go, oh, wait a minute, that is that. And you'd sort of, like, laugh yeah. because you realize you just subconsciously wrote something that clearly harkens back to something that you've heard. Is that yes. – did, did you guys pick up on any of that? Where, like, you were writing this song you go, oh, my gosh, that's – I'm totally hearing – Yellow or when you heard the demo did you go did you sort of take a double take and go that's because when I heard it I heard like um, I want you she's so heavy that's what that little little part yeah. sounded like it was out of that Beatles song um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you if that sort of like sparked into your brain like oh I that's you know I, there's an there's an odd influence that people are, are going to probably like do, have a double take when they realize that we just wrote a you know, something that's Beatles influence, which I don't think from listening to Fantastic Planet or, or the other songs in this record, you would go, oh, the Beatles are a clear influence. You know, you th- you think Floyd and you think other bands, but um, not necessarily the Beatles or, or even like the Beach Boys either. That I heard like Pet Sounds type stuff um, yeah. on that song.
3: Um, You know, I mean, Greg is definitely, I mean, as we all are, uh, you know, growing up listening to music, the Beatles, Pink Floyd, like all of that stuff was certainly a really, really heavy influence. Um, You know, and I think as a band, we're really fortunate in one way that we sound like ourselves. You know, you really can't pick out those types of things. And in most of our music, you know, I think some of that is due to the fact that we have our own sound. Uh, I think if you took all those songs and played them on an acoustic guitar, you would hear definitely a lot more similarity to, you know, um, things that did or didn't influence us. Um, And that song in particular, you know, I know when Greg wrote it, um, there was definitely a direct nod to that. Um, And, you know, to to imagine that there's any band on earth that wasn't influenced by someone, even the Beatles, um, you know, is kind of weird because, I mean, it's it's impossible. You know, for me, right. certainly, that's, I learned to play music, you know, ATVC, Phil Rudd, taught me how to play the drums. Um, but you're not going to listen to me play and then go, oh, my God, like, he plays just like Phil Rudd. Um, you might say I play like John Bonham, but the funny thing is, is John Bonham had a lot less of an influence on my playing than Phil Ludwig, or even Clive Burr from Iron Maiden, for that matter. All right. Um, You know, so, I, you know, it's just one of those things that, you know, sort of eats its way in there. But I would say, you know, Greg was definitely very conscious of, you know, the kind of song he was writing, you know, and I was very conscious of it when I heard it. Um, And even that part, like, yeah, it sounds like a Pink boy song or a Beatles song, but there is no specific part in that song that was like taken from either of those bands or either of those band songs. Um, it's, it, I mean, it's the influence. Yeah, you know, it's, it's almost like the song they they didn't get a chance to write.
5: It Shows growth in the band. Yeah. I, mean, I think that's what kind of um, when I heard it. I wasn't expecting it, but at the same point, it really made oh, me excited for the record yeah. because I felt, I think you alluded to it in our first interview, was that we were going to hear some things that were were new and different for you guys, but still failure. Yeah. And I think that's, this song kind of delivers on that. Yeah, and I love it.
3: I mean, I, I don't have, you know, I, I think it's a great song, you know, and its it's, you know, that happens to be the song that we have that kind of, you know, sounds like something that we're influenced by. I mean, that's awesome. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that we were able to sort of pay homage in such a clear. but, you know, I think we wrote a great song. Like, you know, what better way to, you know, sort of give a nod to, you know, those bands that obviously influenced us. Uh, but like I said, I think The Nurse has some of that, too. Um, you know, I think we just executed the nurse in more of a failure kind of way.
5: Right, right. I, yeah, I totally agree with that.
3: You know, I, I think we were definitely felt comfortable with playing Greg's song the way Greg wrote his song. Mm-hmm. You know a lot of the cues and direction for that song, I mean were, you know, it's Greg wrote a beautiful song. you know, I didn't I, didn't, I don't think anyone felt it needed to be messed with. Or, or felt it was anything but a failure sign
1: I think the thing that maybe is the difference. I'd have to uh, check with my wife because she knows how to like read music and I don't. Um, I think I the, the the feeling that's different between Nurse and Mulholland Drive is it feels like there's more major um, chords uh, yeah. as opposed to it's the happier. like minor chords. Yeah, it's happier. Yeah, it has it's a just brighter happy. sound. Yeah,
3: it has a and not, optimism to
1: it. <laughs> and I'm not used to that with Failure. That's, yeah. <laughs> I'm expecting, I'm expecting like tune down half, you know, half step down, maybe drop D, you know, big, heavy, dark riffs and dark subject matter. So to hear something sure. that's in a, sure. in a major chord or a major key is sort of like a, whoa, that's probably as much of a, of a evolution of the band as much as anything.
3: Well, and there, there's definitely a lot less of our, our normal, like sort of, um, dissonance you know, like notes notes working against one another to create a sound. Sure. Yeah, you know, that song's pretty pretty open and and orchestrated. You know, whereas yeah, I mean, you definitely don't get that often from us.
1: You mentioned that Fair Light era was previously a a demo called Big Trash, um, which I think is a yeah. line that's or it's in the chorus of the song, um, yeah. and that's part of the demos with the the original five, I guess. Uh-huh. Was that song always in that form in terms of that uh kind of choppy verse part and then going into that halftime <laughs> immediately without yeah. it's it, it it catches me off guard because there's no fill that takes you from that no. A part to the B part.
3: It's it's a very very weird song. Uh it's very very choppy. Um, And I don't do my normal where I'm going to lead you into the next part with a fill and let you down easy. Um, It's definitely all very purposeful. The only difference between the version that we have now and the previous version is about 15 guitar tracks. (laughs) There were a lot of guitar tracks on the original. Um, A lot of stuff that Ken didn't even remember was there. Uh, when we came back and uh, mixed the record. So the, the version, it almost sounds like a completely, from a musical standpoint, um, it, it is almost a completely different song from what we, you know, put out to uh, what we started with last year.
5: One of the things that struck me about this record, I think you're kind of talking about it, is that, uh, yeah, there are a lot of layers, but there's not a ton of guitar tracks, right? I mean... There's a primary yeah. and maybe a secondary. Well, there, there's, only,
3: there's only one guitar playing at all times.
5: Yeah. Which makes it sound actually a lot bigger in a strange way. Like yeah. there's more space. Well, it's and
3: just, it's, it's just like drums. When you're recording drums, you would think the harder you hit it, the bigger it's going to sound. Mm-hmm. And it's the total opposite. Like the softer you hit a drum, the bigger it sounds because you're hearing the whole drum, as soon as you start to put velocity and force into the drum, you're, you're, you, you begin to choke the drum. Like there, there's a, a threshold where you have diminishing the turn.
2: Gotcha.
5: There's all ta- There's too much attack. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And I mean, audio, I mean, they're, they're, they're college courses on it. I mean, it's, it's really crazy when you get like super technical and, you know, if you come at it from that standpoint, you know, and even, you know, there's some theory of, you know, mixing and engineering and how to record records and, you know, just like there is in the music itself. So you really can make things sound like they're happening, but really aren't happening.
5: Is that Depending discipline?
3: That
5: is that discipline in um, sort of in the way that you track or is that edited out? Like, are there both. tracks, both. a lot of guitar tracks that just aren't used?
3: It's, it's definitely both. I mean, you know, sometimes a lot of guitar tracks placed in the right place, you know, of the, the, the uh, sort of visual audio dashboard. You know, if you're looking at the tracks, like the placement of those tracks in relationship to, you know, everything that's in the song um, will change the perspective. Um but at the same time, you know, the, the absence um, of stuff and, you know, relying more on the spaciousness, you mm-hmm. know, of the plane. You know, I, I mean, they Ken's mixed a lot of records, you know, and he's recorded a lot of records, um, you know, and these are, like, just really weird small things that honestly... If I had to do them, it would drive me insane, and I could never put out a record.
5: You'd never um, be done. You know,
3: I would want up in the in first. Yeah. Um, but Ken's got one of those kind of brains where, you know, he loves information. He doesn't get distracted distracted by um, the the small detail like that's actually where he lives. Hmm. I'm a big picture guy. Like, send me a copy of the mix when you're done with it. <laughs> You know, <laughs> gotcha. Oh, I want that to be a little louder. Can you turn that down a little bit? Oh, I can't really hear the sleigh bell. You know what I mean? Like uh-huh. the the stupid stuff. Uh-huh. You know, I like. I'm all about the performances. Like, what does it make me feel? You know, when I'm listening to it. Sure.
1: Right. In your um, uh, Brooklyn Vegan diary entry, you mentioned that you really enjoy playing this song because it makes you focus and concentrate. Um, of uh, based on how how difficult it is to play. One of the quick Twitter, uh, Twitter questions we had from uh, Brian D was, in terms of playing live, what is us what would we consider like one of your favorite songs to play live off the new record? What's the most fun?
3: You know, uh, Mulholland Drive is not necessarily fun because I'm just so serious about playing it right. Um, it, it's really fun afterwards if I manage to play it right. But I would say counterfeit sky and AM amnesia of the songs that we're playing right now. Um, oh, otherwhere, otherwhere is sorry. That's my number one. Um, okay. Because physically, it's a beast, and the drum part, like, like they really just let me go. Like there's some stuff in there that, like, every time I play it, like I'm I'm just like oh my God, that sounds so cool. Like, I can't believe I, like, not only wrote that, but played it, like, that's just so tough.
5: That song were kind of sounded like the sister song to uh, Hot Traveler to me a little bit. Like it has that similar yeah. kind of vibe to it.
2: It's uh, the
3: bass line. Yeah. The bass is similar. It, it's, like, really slightly different. It's, uh, like two bass notes and three bass notes and three bass notes and two bass notes. Whereas Hot Traveler is just two bass notes, two bass mm-hmm. notes, two bass notes. Like it's two in that. Um, that one, uh, Ken and I wrote, um, together just bass and drums and the, the, the bass and drums from part to part sound so similar to one another. Um, it was really, really easy to get lost when we were trying to arrange that song. Uh, it was, it was, Fun and I played really. I, I kind of lost my cool and and recorded that song really really hard and heavy, sort of against everything that I've said to you so far. Uh, I played <laughs> it like I was playing it live.
5: Well, I was gonna say it kind of it comes across. There's a yeah an aggression to it that some of the other songs don't yeah, have. and it's,
3: it to. that. That yep. song reminds me of something. Um, you know, I'm I'm definitely not pro war but if I was in a war and say I was like, you know, in a tank or something like mm. that, that would be good stuff to do. Nice. Like this something really sort of menacingly tough and dark about it. Mm-hmm. And then the guitars are actually kind of Solaris-ish.
5: Yeah. Weird. Um, uh, you know, with the, with the bass and the drums, with that song and um, Hot Traveler so locked up. And just, um, just, I don't know, just a heavy groove. The guitars can almost do anything over top of that. So um,
2: there's well, a lot I, of cool... The guitar,
3: the guitar part made that song. I know there was a point after Ken and I had done just the drums and bass and there were no guitars and no vocals. It kind of sounded uh, sort of like an ACDC song. I think that one at mm-hmm. one point was a contender to be abandoned. Um, but then Ken started playing that guitar part and instantly, um, Greg and I were just kind of sitting there on the couch when we started playing that and our ears like perked up and it literally just by nature of that guitar part became a completely different song.
5: Makes sense. You can hear that. Some of those, yeah. uh, I actually remarked in, in my notes in this song that there's, um, a couple little guitar parts that kind of reminded me of Cave In a little bit, um, they had like a, almost like a Middle Eastern scale or something going on, which they yeah, yeah. use quite a bit. Um, So, yeah. I'm sure when Stephen hears...
3: Or, uh, Heliotropic, Heliotropic yeah. has that kind of stuff, too.
5: Mm-hmm. Kind of came full circle for me with that band and how they were influenced by Failure.
3: I love Caving. Yeah. Troy, Troy and I got up to play with them uh, on one of the Wall of uh, We got up and played Magnified with them.
1: Oh, cool. He uh, what yeah,
5: was he? There was an article that came out when the record re- was released, with a bunch of uh, artists talking about how they were influenced by failure. And I think Stephen told a story about did, did Ken produce one of the records, or was gonna produce one of the records?
3: He and, was yeah. gonna produce one. They talked about the earlier Kaden records. They are yeah, the uh, talk- all really good friends. Like they, they all came out to. Uh, when we played in Boston last year, they were all there. And I'm going to see Steven when we go to New York. I've already hit him up and let him know that we're coming. Yeah. Um, those guys are great. He's been the uh, new toy man. Yeah. Holy crap. Those guys are insane.
1: <laughs> yeah, they're pretty he's awesome.
3: A, he's a super, super, like, sweet, amazing dude, but such a gifted guitar player.
5: Yeah. He's pretty prolific, too.
3: Yes.
2: <laughs>
5: but this, the story you told was that uh, I think they thought they were going to impress Ken by learning a failure song and playing it for him when he showed up to, I guess he was going to produce a record, maybe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he was saying that they, he came walking in and they just like launched in the song and Ken was just like holding, immediately just grabbed his ears. <laughs> And they stopped playing. He's like, yeah. you, guys, you guys are really fucking loud. <laughs> yeah. And I think it just kind of took the piss out of them.
3: <laughs> yeah.
5: It was pretty funny. It probably funny.
3: weirded them out a little bit, too. Uh, yeah, I mean, we're, yeah. we're, we're, we're definitely, um, you know, I mean, all of us are kind of like, yeah, I mean, you know, there are a million and one things that we could have chose to do, you know, with our lives.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, but we chose music. Um, and, you know, I think part of each of us kind of wishes that there was a way to do that and just get treated like a normal person.
2: Hmm.
3: Um, you know, we're not super comfortable with, you know, just sort of some of the accolades or, you know, the sort of fans and like autographs and you know what I mean? Like it's, Mm -hmm. it's always a little bit, uh, I think we're better at it. You know, because we we can appreciate, you know, we were kids once and, you know, we listen to music and lots of bands and musicians had that kind of effect on us. Um, But it's still just slightly strange, I think, when you're the focus of it. You know, we're we're not comfortable enough that we, you know, feel like we have a great reaction to any of that kind of stuff. Mm
2: -hmm. You know,
3: I think it's probably a little bit easier with me um, because I tend to be like really kind of, you know, mushy and just over, over grateful, you know, that I get to live and have the life I have is just absolutely mind blowing. There are no words for, you know, how special it makes me feel, you know, I mean, it's just, it's really, it's wonderful being me, you know, but that's not, you know, because I think I'm, you know, so great at what I do or any of that kind of stuff. Um, It just affords me that, you know, I get to live out my dreams. Right. You know,
5: I've always dreamt about doing this. You mentioned Focus in that. Uh, The only song I think we haven't talked about is The Focus. Um, Which version? (laughs) I'm only aware of the one on the record, but it has a big, big rock riff. Kind of has a big, straightforward rock riff to it. And obviously the the distorted bass plays a huge role in, in the song. But do you want to talk about this one a little bit?
3: It kind of reminds me of Pillowhead a little bit and just how simple it is mhm um you know it's just like one basic part with you know a few changing guitar lines over top of it, or at least that's how it started um and again, it was one of the first one of the first ones that we recorded, and i I think that one you know after listening listening to it a bunch and we were playing it a couple times when we were out on the road doing that, that tour, the sort of "quote unquote" reunion tour. We sort of got tired of listening to the song and playing it. It sort of it, it felt like it was begging to be more than what it was, um, and we kind of got distracted in trying to overwrite the song. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we were on the road, we actually did just that. Because we record um, all of our sets um, at two of the sound checks, we we added in this like really long kind of uh, sort of police-ish third verse breakdown thing that would, made the song like you know probably a minute and a half longer than it actually was or even is now. Um, and we recorded that and kind of lived with that for a while. And during the recording process, that was the one song that no one really wanted to mess with, uh, or even listen to. Um, it was on the chopping block. It was definitely Mm. going away. And as we moved toward the close of the record, um, I started listening to that a lot on my, my drive to, uh, uh, the studio. Um, and I was listening to it and listening to it and I just loved that it was so simple and so bare bones, and, mm. like, the song is what it is, you know? It's, it's yeah. unlike anything else on the record, you know, if you listen to sort of, like, the, the meat and bones of it, just the bass and the drums, you know, at some point, it was really obvious that we had to go back to the original demo of it um, and get back down to the basics, and whatever it was that needed to change about it was more of a scene change and something really, really simple, you know, and I kind of came in one day and was just like, you know, this song, I don't know what it is, but it's something and it's really simple. It might just be you like muting out some of the guitars or, you know, it's something like that. It's not actually writing another part for it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think they kind of, straight away from throwing it away and sort of tried to believe whatever it was that I was believing in, you know, they were excited that I was excited.
5: Yeah.
3: Um, And I think when, when Ken started to mix the record, that's kind of exactly what he did when he started to get in all the tracks, which there were a lot of acoustic tracks and things like that, that were no longer there in the version that we were listening to. Um, and he basically, like, muted everything on that, you know, that third chorus. He muted everything, brought the acoustic guitars back in. Uh, I think he added that, like, uh, uh, those two simple little keyboard parts. Um, and he also rewrote, uh, he rewrote the B part, chorus, and the chorus. Uh, or the, 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 I guess, pre-chorus and chorus entirely rewrote the, the uh, uh lyrics and melody um that was the first thing he did actually when he did that like it was like oh well this is a great song you Yeah. Know? and then during the mix he came up with the um you know bringing those acoustics back in and that just blew the song wide open as soon as he did that like everyone fell in love with it again.
2: Souls in a cloud, the focus hovers around you as your memory swallows the crowd.
5: Yeah. At first listen, it was, uh, I think a really important song to the second half of the record. It was certainly one that I'm first listened, my ears perked up to. And now I, I think it's a nice, um, it's a nice mint, <laughs> if you will, between, yeah. Yeah. uh, some of the segues and stuff that's a little bit headier. It's just, I think by simplifying it down, you capture the energy, which is, you know, crucial to have at, at that point in the record, just a little burst of you know, simplicity and just pure energy, which, uh, worked out well.
3: Thank you for saying, it. and you know what? Thank you. Like all, all of you guys, like, I, I can't say enough, like, you know, making this record and putting it out that like, you know, people, you know, genuinely like really like the record, you know? And I think it's awesome that you guys, you know, call me up and, and we get to do this and, you know like i said when i heard you guys talk about fantastic planet like it was just such a pleasure to hear you know you guys talk about the record and you know it's always nice when people you know have favorable ideas about you and, and your music and
4: so thanks it's great yeah i was thinking the uh the only other band i could think of from sort of your you know the, the 90s era that recently put out our new record that i think was just as solid or, you know, as, as good of a, a comeback album as you can make with Soundgarden, the King Animal record. I don't know if you're a fan of theirs, but I think what you guys have done uh with the new album is is pretty pretty much unprecedented. There aren't any bands that can go away for that long and come back, I think, with as solid of an album as this. Yeah. I think that's, right, that's a testament right. to what, what you guys do and your process and, and all the work that you guys put in. So I'm, I'm really... It's always cool to hear bands come back and play, you know, the hits and the stuff that you know and love. But it's it's even better when, when the bands can come back and actually bring new music out that's just as good as what they were doing before, if not better. And I think you guys have definitely done that. So, so thank you.
1: <laughs> yeah,
5: it's it's kind of unheard of. I mean, to be completely honest, it really is. Yeah, even that Soundgarden that-
4: record, which is good, but it's still, uh, yeah, it's spotty. It's spotty. I mean, it, that was really the only other band I could come up with just to even. References like that had even yeah. tried to do that.
1: What about the Afghan Wigs last year? oh That's uh, true. Uh,
4: yeah,
3: that came, that that's a good point. record.
1: To record. Uh, no comment. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so when we we did the same thing last year, where we we reviewed the Afghan Wigs, we broke our format. We reviewed a new record. We had we had the guy who runs the Afghan Wigs website on with us, and Jay oh. basically took a big dump on the new <laughs> Afghan Wigs record. <laughs> It would have been uh, like, like if
2: that.
5: it would have been like if the new failure record if Ken would have replaced Greg and and Kelly with two other guys and called it failure. <laughs> hey, it's yeah. the same yeah. thing, be,
1: man. Yeah. Wow. Hey, John nice. Curley
5: played. Uh, it's funny
3: you say that though? Because I was actually just when we were in New Orleans, uh, we were hanging out with a couple of guys from Afghan They took us out to have uh, some amazing uh, uh, local flavor. Um And I know I know Greg Dooley really well. We we knew each other back in the day, uh, and we also played with Mark Lanigan for a little while. Oh yeah, um, we talked
1: about that last time. We're trying to get you on yeah. the next Gutter Twins record. Remember, that's our that was our goal. The last podcast is that we yeah, want you to play drums on the next Gutter Twins record.
3: we are just about to start working on that. You know what? Um, thank you for reminding me. I just saw Greg's <laughs> birthday a month ago, and when I get off, I'm going to text him. And tell him that there are a lot of people Out there that think I should be on the new
4: Gutter
1: <laughs> Yes. That would be awesome And we won't take Any credit for that, you know, you can just Put it in the liner notes of the album uh, No,
5: we but, will uh, take credit for that,
1: that Oh, okay Yeah,
3: yeah <laughs> but I I think,
2: I'll give credit,
5: we hey, we credit
3: can, Your just, credit was, is due, man, yeah. that's my motto I mean, I do, I, think I do
4: Like the, the Wigs record But I think Jay has a good point That it's not it wasn't the original band that came back and made that record. So no, I think, right. again, no, it's, you know, right. Failure... It's, I mean, I like said it's a good record, but I think Failure coming back with all three guys and making a good record, like, again, it's just kind of unprecedented right now in, in terms of, like, other bands yeah. that have done that, so...
1: Well, this has been an unprecedented year, if you think about it. You know, with Ruca Salt getting their original band back together yeah. and Swerve Driver yeah. getting their band back together and making... Um, a, a homes back together, maybe they'll make a record. Who knows? I mean, this has been a pretty amazing year, uh, for yeah. people like us.
3: Yeah, yeah the new Barucha yeah. record is really good, too.
1: Yeah, I saw that you guys were playing on the same night as them in, um, in Nashville. In, in Nashville. Yeah, was there any thoughts of sabotaging yeah. their, uh, their show so that the, the fans um, would come over?
3: Well, we, um, Uh, Well, first, thank you. I I did listen to the the Dig Me Out that you guys did with Beliefs, and she gave me big props. I remember that, and that was a a great uh, podcast. Um, Yeah, that was fun. But Nashville, I I didn't hear a whole lot about what actually happened at their show. Um, Nashville is a particularly great city for us, um, and I know it's not really that – although it is getting bigger, it's, I, I don't think the people that go out and see rock bands is necessarily that big, so I don't know how it would fare having two really, like, kick-ass rock bands on the same night um, from the same era. Uh, I think it definitely is a crowd splitter. Um, I do know that our uh, show is very, very well-attended. And I also know Louise and I were talking um, via text message, um, like probably, I don't know, two or three days before that and up into the gig. She was trying to make it over to our show to see some of our set before um, she had to be back at her show, but it, it didn't wind up working out. Um, we weren't going on as early as she thought.
1: Any chance of you guys touring together?
3: Um. I don't know. I mean, maybe it's definitely a possibility. Um, I uh, I know they're sort of, um, you know, because Nina and Louise both have children also, and mm-hmm. um, you know, our whole approach toward touring nowadays is we 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 don't stay out too long. You know, we'll stay out for like three or four weeks. Um, this this last tour I think was about three weeks, but it was over four weekends. Um, so it seemed like four weeks. Um, and then, you know, we all get to come home and, you know, they get to spend time with their families. Um, and then we, you know, we have this next run. We're doing another uh, month. And then we have the whole month of September off. Gotcha. Um, but they kind of do the same thing. I think they only go out for like two weeks at a time. Though.
4: So that that was something I actually wanted to ask you about, Kelly, And that I know Jay and Tim were going to we're going to beat you down with the, the details of the record and the recording and all the songs, but I was curious to get your take on, you know, touring, you know, being, you know, being a band that toured in the nineties sort of towards the uh, the beginning of sort of the record label industry starting to collapse and then um, kind of going away for a lot of that. And then, and then I know you've done some other projects, but just coming back with the same band and then, you know, knowing that you're in a place in your personal life with, you know, actions that you had back then that you don't have now, or that you you know you've you've beaten, and now you have a family, you know, families and things like that. What's the touring landscape like for you guys, other than you, know, you mentioned kind of changing your schedules and how you do things? But just touring in general, I was curious what that's like now compared to back then. You know, well,
3: one thing, just uh, the general mood of the band um, is much more positive and optimistic and, um, like we're all very, very light, you know, and we're all like sort of, um, really, really optimistic and positive about how our future is going to unfold, you know, and even, you know, the long term future and, you know, even immediate future, like we're, we're constantly surprised. Um, our fans are just like, they're so amazing. I mean the way they act the way they treat us at shows it's a, an absolute pleasure to do it night after night um you know which i think helps a lot that you don't slip into the grind of it all um you know so we we have a lot of like really positive su- positive factors supporting us through you know the weeks that we go on tour um i don't think anything is going to change as far as like we're committed to um making sure that our family and loved ones don't suffer because we're getting a second shot at this, you
2: know, they're,
3: they're more important. Um, because you know, if this doesn't work out they're what's going to be there. You know, so that, that, those relationships are are more important. A a hit record isn't all of a sudden like, you know, going to force us to go on the road for six months or anything crazy like that. You know, we'll do it well, the way we're the, doing it, and eventually we'll we'll get to see and do all the things we need to
4: do for this record cycle. Sure, and it has to be huge contrast in that you know, talking about the late '90s where you guys were sort of getting you know trying to hold on to a record deal, and then coming back now with a crowdfunded record that you you know were able to pay for and record before you ever even set foot on the road. So I imagine that has to change. I imagine that creates a, a whole lot of optimism for a band that's going back out on the road and trying to get, you know, to the status that you at least had, if not, you know, further it. So that's gotta be
3: pretty yeah. exciting. And, and that That's another luxury um, that we, you know, at this point in our career, like we actually have a career, we can go out on the road and tour and support ourselves um, all on our own. You know, we don't, we don't need the, uh, The support of, you know, what you used to get from a traditional record company. Uh, We don't owe anybody anything. And even there's a slight um, uh, misconception about um, how we did this record. Um, The record wasn't actually funded by the fans. We paid for the record off of the money we made from touring last year. Um, Oh, okay. The the fan participation, all of that was just pre-order. You get to pre order the record. Um, And most of that money, um, some of it did go into the record, um, but most of it went into after spending all of our money to record the record. um, You know, we wouldn't normally, we wouldn't otherwise have records to start a tour. You know, at the beginning of the tour, you've got to have your bus deposit, you've got to have the money to make your merch. Um, you know, there, there's a plethora of things that you have to have money for at the beginning of a tour before you've made money on tour, you can't, you know, get a bus on an IOU. Um, huh. so some of the money went into that,
2: um, Okay. but
3: all of that was, that was the actual pre order, you know? Um, and you know, we had those other benefits, like you can buy, um, you know, things that you normally wouldn't be able to buy like the guitar pedals that made Fantastic Planet and Magnified or, you know, my giant drumsticks or a drum lesson or, like, ten people came out to watch ten mix two songs while we were, you know, finishing the record. Um, You know, things like that, which, you know, is another thing. You know, earlier I was talking about, you know, how sort of, uh, um, you know, the people sort of promote and make records now. Like there's this whole social media thing, you know, that you can sort of like get involved and you can get people where traditionally you had to put out a record and pay tons of money to have press talk about your record. You know, now you can actually get your fans involved like way earlier in the process and have them like really, really excited to sort of like, you know, take that three or six months that you're, you know, recording and writing the record to sort of like get a jump on the game of, you know, just trying to reach all those people out there, especially for a band like us that don't even know that you've gotten back together. Um, So, you know, that was that whole pledge thing. Like that was definitely a new thing that we were like, you know, I I think there's a way to embrace this um, in, in like a really cool way, you know, so, you know, that's kind of how that went down. Um, some people do think that, you know, that actually paid for the record. Um, but no, it just, it, it, you know, paid to keep us moving forward once the record was done.
5: Was that, in the end, a good experience? Would you guys consider doing that again?
3: Yeah, actually, we're still using Pledge for um, uh, uh, ticket sales. Um, they're still handling, like, you can go onto our website and you can buy tickets to our shows. Like, we have a certain amount of tickets that we set aside Mm
2: -hmm.
3: um, so people can get a hold of them from us um, because normally, when you come into a city, you've got a scalper that buys up as many tickets as he can possibly get. Um, So we're kind of doing that so we have a little bit of control over making sure that a good amount of people that want to come and see failure get to come and see failure oh,
2: nice. um
3: you know one of the things that happened when we did that l-ray show like it sold out in two minutes and you know the very next day they were like it wasn't sold out they were like these people that bought like hundreds of tickets and they were selling them for like a thousand dollars it's like are you insane
2: mm-hmm. like a
3: thousand dollars like i mean it was just total nonsense and it was kind of heartbreaking honestly um you know, so it was just kind of a chance to sort of combat some of that sort of stuff. You know, obviously it happens more in L.A. and New York and, you know, the bigger cities where there are, like, professional organizations that scalp pickets. But, uh, yeah, we're, we're still using them. We're, it, it was a great experience. It really was. And I think the fans got a great experience. And, you know, I think it brought us closer. We're not as far removed. From our fan base and what they think, you know, about what we do or don't do. Mm
1: -hmm. So, when will we expect a new album? (laughs) The next, the next album. Um,
3: You know, I, 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 I honestly, I can tell you that we have plenty of material for another album. Um. So once we get started, I think it'll be you know just as quick as this one. You know, this one was pretty quick. Um. But uh, without knowing how long we're going to be supporting this record, um, you, know, if, uh, you know, if things don't take off, I think we'll probably tour, you know, through the summer of next year. You know, so worst case scenario, you know, if things don't take off, we'll tour through, you know, next year, um, this time, probably take a couple months off and then get back to it at the beginning of 2017
1: whatever it ends up being, I'm going to take bets right now that the first song is called Segway 10.
3: That's my, <laughs> that's my prediction. <laughs> um, um, depending on how much you're willing to put on that, I'll take your bet. <laughs> oh. <laughs> all, right, all right. Well, we'll... That, that is a little insider trading there.
1: Yeah, that is insider trading. Yeah. I don't, uh, I don't know. That's not legal. Um, well, that'll you know,
3: be the. F- we'll, we'll start the record off with segue ten through sixteen, and then just have like ten songs.
1: That's a way to go. That's uh yeah. unconventional, but that's a that's a way to go. You can make them all wow. hidden yeah. tracks as well. We can go back to the hidden track era of the '90s, and you have tracks segways track? ten through sixteen, and then ten hidden tracks, and that's the album.
3: Yeah. Maybe an hour, um, an hour of silence, and then an hour of music, but hidden.
1: There you go. It's, sure. You're combining uh, you're combining uh, the some Philip or putting some Philip glass in there. There you go. Um, yeah. Well, we've we usually try to wrap up at the hour mark. We've now hit about the two and a half hour mark.
2: <laughs> yeah. Almost. I, you know,
3: you guys know me by now. I like to talk.
1: And we appreciate okay. that you do like to talk because these are always. Um highly enjoyable and the people we've basically I don't think you have to do any more interviews after this. We've pretty much done the definitive track by track of The Heart is a Monster. So um I think you can take some time off and head back on up to Santa Barbara. I've been there, they have great uh, right. great places for wine and tacos and that kind of stuff. So oh, it's um, beautiful up
3: there. It's a great so on uh, on that note, I'm gonna start to defer all of my interviews to uh uh One of you guys, yeah. Just point them to the two. Point
5: them to the two episodes and say, "Hey, it's all in there, man."
1: Yeah,
3: yeah. Or just I'll I'll make you guys sit on the phone with them and answer the question.
1: Okay, (laughs) we'll be your proxy. We'll we'll just play clips. We'll just like okay, we have that clip and we press that press a button and it plays that clip. And then we'll always refer to you as Mr. Scott. Yes, what what Mr.
5: Scott thinks about this would be. His approach to the – Mr. Scott's approach to the drums <laughs> on that track were. <laughs> I
1: love it. Uh, okay. So when this comes out, you guys will be back on the road to be playing with Hum. I'm extremely jealous. I won't be seeing any of those shows, but that will be happening. And then uh, plans are for uh, more shows, I guess, after that as they come up. And um, October. You know, everybody's going to be October, and um, where, um,
3: where are all you guys at? Where are you at?
1: All right, so I, this is Tim. I'm in Columbus, Ohio. Right,
2: right.
1: Uh, Keith is in Columbus, Ohio, different part, uh-huh. but not too far uh-huh. from me. And then Jay is in Austin, Texas, which
2: oh, you guys just played well, a little you bit ago. There last week? Did you wa- last
1: week. I was not.
3: Oh, I'm- dude! <laughs> you freaking missed. You missed a doozy. Uh Austin, Eno's Holy crap Like those kids That was a really really great show Was that one of
5: the
1: hour and a half sets?
3: Hour and 45
1: Oh shit uh, I offered to fly down To go to the show <laughs> with him But yeah. I couldn't get a, a flight that was reasonable Because he didn't have anybody to go well, with I don't that have that any rock friends here
2: sure.
3: So Tim and Keith, like how, how far is uh, uh Champaign from you? Champaign, Illinois. Uh, probably you
1: know? six hours. Yeah. Six hour drive.
3: Okay. Well, um, there, you know, I can't say for sure, but I, I know we are gonna do probably a few more dates with Hum. Um, maybe October ish.
4: Well it looks uh, like you guys champagne. are in Louisville this weekend, Louisville this Friday then, right? uh yeah yeah because that's only a four hour that's a four hour drive from here
3: yeah that. yeah that's, I, I, uh, I can't go to that <laughs> my parents I are visiting just, uh, i don't think hum is on that show i think it's us and uh um i think elon elon Rubens' band new regime okay i thought it was hum and braid yeah you know that guy the drummer the drummer from nine inch nails he's also uh uh, what was the other day he was in? He played on the Paramore record, is kind of how he got on my radar. Um, uh, insanely talented drummer, but also like plays everything. He's just like one of those freaks that plays all, all instruments super too well. But, yeah. Well, we'll
1: have to see if we can get him on the show because this is drummer month here at Dig Me Out because our next interview coming up is um, Mr. Dale Crover of the Melvins. So
2: oh, we're we're officially shit.
1: Yeah, we basically got the two oh, best drummers cool. playing in rock and roll right now in our in on the in the month of August.
3: So oh, dude, that kid. He's <laughs> wow. He's a monster. Like a true monster. Yes. Um ask him if he still plays with uh I think they were Regal Tips, but I saw him like probably I don't know, maybe 15, 16 years ago, and he was playing with these gigantic, I think there were regal tips, but the the the, the tip of the drumstick was a gigantic nylon ball. It looked more like a mallet for bells <laughs> at the end of a drumstick. It was totally wow. insane. Wow. I couldn't figure out how he was playing with those and not destroying his drum head every song.
5: Sure. uh, some of the records has a very unique drum sound so maybe that's what's going on there
3: yeah well he he has a very unique playing style too Mm. you know there's definitely like 60-70% of any drummer's sound is the drummer
2: Mm -hmm. and how he
3: plays and he's Dale definitely for sure is one of those drummers Um, brilliant drummer such great great energy like you can tell, he's like one of those guys that either really, really loves what he does, or either or or really, really hates what he does. Mm. Like the emotion of his playing is so, so strong.
5: Cool. It's like to talk to him.
1: Yeah. Well, we had to give up on bass players because they kept not calling us, so we only talk to <laughs> drummers now. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Uh, they're too
3: strange from glory.
2: You can forget about. That. <laughs>
1: Oh, brilliant. We're going to end it on that note. We're going to say uh, thank you to Kelly for coming back and joining us. And um, we look forward to having you back when the next uh, failure record is in pre-production. And we could talk about that in 2017. Jay and I will probably have handed off the podcast to our kids at that point. We're going to do this (laughs) kiss style and just turn it over to the next generation. Keith, thanks for joining us.
4: Yeah, thanks for having me. It was great to be here. Yeah.
1: Uh, We need to thank Brian for calling in, and um, that's it. We want to thank everybody for listening. Please, uh, if you like what you heard, head on over to digmeoutpodcast.com, request a review, or iTunes to leave us some positive feedback. That's it. We'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out.